good news everyone talking futurama is coming back for talking futurama season two part two fresher than a summer ham this podcast comes every friday and if you sign up at the five dollar level at patreon.com slash talking simpsons you can hear each episode as it goes live that's right sign up today at patreon.com slash talking simpsons for five dollars to hear talking futurama every friday throughout the rest of 2020 and also all the previous episodes we've done so far so head over to patreon.com slash talking simpsons now or we're gonna clamp you shut up and take my money i heartily endorse this event or product Ahoy hoy everybody and welcome to Talking Simpsons where our mission is to get down with the clown. I'm your host, techno thriller junkie Bob Mackey and this is our chronological exploration of the Simpsons who is here with me today as always. Why it's Henry Gilbert and it's going to take a lot of fireworks to clean this one up. And who is our guest on the line? Adorable little hamantagen, Drew Mackey. Today's episode is Insane Clown Poppy. <laughs> this watermelon won't know what hit it. I love our Tuesdays together, Dad. Today's episode aired on November 12th, 2000, and as always, Henry will tell us what happened on this mythical day in real world history. <gasps> oh my god! Oh boy, Bobby, Final Fantasy IX is released in the United States alongside Blues Brothers 2000, the video game. Oh, a duet of pleasures. <laughs> uh, also in theaters, Little Nicky is released, and we're just a few days into the official recount of Florida Votes. Oh, oh boy, that's going to go well. These are all like talking Futurama flashbacks I'm getting. Yes, yeah. The uh, Yeah, in between the two episodes of season 12 in the timeline that we've done, the 2000 election has happened with a whole lot of stuff going on including you know hillary clinton got elected to the to the senate as well uh but obviously everybody's watching florida checking on the hanging chads and at this point in the timeline the florida supreme court supports a, a recount and i uh, think in about two weeks it'll go up to the supreme court and we'll hear what they have to say and as of this recording we don't know who won yet oh yes i yeah. mean dangerous <laughs> don could flip it oh sure <laughs> Sure, we never yes, know. It's yeah. just mid-December right now. We don't know uh, what will happen. I mean, recent in, in at the time of this recording was even the conservative judges at the Supreme Court were presented with one possible uh, way to throw it out. And they're just like, no, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> They, they can't even give Don that much. And uh, the curious thing about that Blues Brothers 2000 video game is it came out over two years after the film was released in 1998. They had to spend all that time uh, modeling John Goodman accurately. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Final Fantasy IX, I know uh, we can talk a ton about that, but Bob, you yes. just did a whole Retronauts about it. There is two hours of Final Fantasy IX chat waiting for you on the Retronauts feed, so check that out. I did the episode back in November of 2020, so uh, it's on the feed. Check it out. All my thoughts are there, preserved mm. forever. And, you know, this is what people played when they couldn't get a PlayStation 2, but also, like, PlayStation 2 <laughs> had no games on it. Or I guess you were playing Final Fantasy IX on your PlayStation 2. That was me. 2. That yeah. was me. When I got sick of snowboarding, I played this. <laughs> I actually subscribed to the Retronauts Patreon specifically to listen to that Final Fantasy IX episode because I was doing like work uh, outside. I needed something to listen to and nothing seemed as good as that. And I enjoyed that so thoroughly. I think I'm going to replay Final Fantasy IX. Ooh, thank you. Yeah, because of the quarantine, I actually had time to replay a 
50-hour RPG, so uh, <laughs> now's a good time for it. And, uh, you know, Little Nicky was the uh, Phil, I believe the... No, I think Big Daddy was in between, but it is a subsequent Adam Sandler film after the one with the co-star of this episode of uh, The Simpsons as well. People that like Adam Sandler, they think this is the downfall, mm-hmm. is Little Nicky. Um, I am a weird Adam Sandler fan in that uh, I was the perfect age to like him on SNL. I was like 11 or 12 when he was at the height of SNL and I like Billy Madison I don't like Happy Gilmore I don't like uh, The Waterboy I don't like Big Daddy but fans of Adam Sandler like those they don't like this Wow, yeah, I, I like Happy. Happy Gilmore is my favorite of his, actually, of, of the pure Adam Sandler ones. I mean, if you ask me, like, what's the best Adam Sam film that stars Adam Sandler? Now I'd say Uncut Gems, because I think that film rules. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Little little Nicky, I think, was the too far moment for a lot of people. Uh, it was also, like, very self-referential, like characters from other ones would show up. And I think, too, it was his character was too mean. Like, it was mm. a mean Little Nicky. And, and they make you waste a lot of time with him torturing his friend who they put in the movie and make there's i remember on the making of little nicky they talk about how that one like friend of his adam whatever they they make him kiss a man in it just as a joke to that they had that they could write their friend to who they always call gay a scene where he kisses a man is that the grandma's boy man oh no that's nick swartz that's okay. the other guy they pay to call gay all the time okay wait i have a i have a uh, thought about our the the featured guest of this episode, Drew Barrymore. Um, I think Wedding Singer is the best Adam Sandler movie because Drew Barrymore is the anti-Adam Sandler in almost every way. And somehow her like earthy peacefulness mellows out his like crunchy hardness and he becomes a lot more tolerable when he's paired with her. Yeah, which Drew, is why they work together so much. You're totally right. I do like that movie, but yeah. I don't consider it an Adam Sandler movie and I don't know why. You're right. She softens so much of, uh, I think she's his best movie wife. Like every, every other movie wife he's given even Jennifer Aniston, it just feels like they're trying to fill the void of Drew Barrymore. Like, Fifty First Dates is like a tragedy film that they turn into a comedy through concept, and yet they, it, she makes it work about as good as any. She has this like I remember in Fifty First Dates, she has this line that like shatters the reality with tragedy. She says, "What happens if I get pregnant? I wake up every morning and I'm pregnant. Like that's gonna drive <laughs> oh. me insane." Like, oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's some real body horror. But then later, yeah. in, in the happy ending of the movie, she does have kids with him. So she does go through that like a couple times. Then, uh, But she falls in love with him every day. That's the that's the comedy of it. There's no one like Drew Barrymore. She's a magical creature that I don't completely understand, but she can do things that no other person on Earth can do. And now she hosts a talk show in the world's largest studio. <laughs> uh, it's well, huge. Yeah. Oh, and I guess speaking of Drews, we I didn't even realize oh. this. We, we have a Drew on this podcast this very any relation week. drew mackie to drew barrymore <laughs> just curious no first of all i assumed you guys asked me because my name is also drew is that oh. not true that oh, never dawned no. on me at all until right now. Yes, no, me okay. neither. Uh, but uh, but yes, Drew Mackey of the podcast, gayest episode ever. No relation. No relation. No relation. Um, no relation, but she's a big figure in my life because she's been the most famous Drew my entire life. And nothing I can do can ever like, compete with that Drew because she has been consistently famous my entire life. Um, and also she is responsible for people asking me if I have a girl's name because, mm. because she's the most famous Drew. People assume that Drew is... 
uh, girl's name. It's really not. It's <laughs> She's like the only girl that has that name. Most of the Drews you meet are boys. Not that I would mind having a girl's name. It's just weird that people make that assumption because she's so famous. Yeah, she's been, uh, I uh, in preparation for this, looking up Drew Barrymore's career, I was like, she has been famous since I was born in 1982, the year E.T. came out. She has mm-hmm. been, and also, I I wonder if she gravitated to this episode because she is the child of a famous person. Mm. Though, really, like it's her granddad who was much more famous than her dad. But yeah, there's something about her. Like, I mean, just looking at her life, she was the tragic tale of a child star, but she turned it all around. Yeah, she and, bounced like, back. Yeah, it's. But reading some of the stuff that happened in her at 11 for her, I'm like, who let her host SNL? And the answer is her parents, who were dere- <laughs> derelict in. Uh, jobs but yeah Ugh. well yeah and in the in the mid 90s was her or i guess early 90s uh was her transformation of like she started starring in like sexier movies and she did she did playboy she she flashed david letterman and then this uh this time in her career in the late 90s was her transition into you know a a comedy actress like have never been kissed and all that and also that she she figured out what you're seeing mark Margot Robbie figured this out right now and that if you can be the hot thing in Hollywood but especially as a woman your shelf life ends pretty quick you got to get into the producing side yeah. as well Drew Barrymore started her own production company she is a producer on the Charlie's Angels films like she's and she still produces stuff to this day like, that is going to protect you in the long term if you're a woman in the fickle world of Hollywood Margot Robbie is one of the like most gorgeous creatures who has ever existed but even for her eventually a new hot young thing will come around and if you don't produce your own movies you're your sol and getting drew barrymore was quite a get for the show because the movie charlie's angels just came out like a week ago all right as of wow. this airing so wow. a huge movie huge movie at the time she was working with matt Groening as well uh he the previous year matt Groening was a producer on the olive the other reindeer oh, that's right uh, special which at its curiosity company along with uh the flower production company drew barrymore has worked on it together and dan Castellaneta is a voice in it and Futurama's Christopher Ting did the music so production was going on in 99 so I think that's probably when the Simpsons producers were like well hey Matt you're working with Drew all this time offer her a role on the show and they actually first offered her the role of the au pair uh, in uh, Becky in uh, a couple production episodes earlier so we're still in production 11 this is the final one of production 11 we're going to talk about next week's episode well two weeks from now's episode Lisa Treehugger is the first of production 12. Mm-hmm. This is the end of 11. That's interesting that she would be offered the role of Becky because I think she's actually not a bad voice actress for someone who primarily does live action stuff, but her skill is in playing kids, like cute kid characters. And I think that's why she does a decent job here and why she did a decent job in all of the other reindeer. Yeah, yeah. She's much better with the innocence thing. I mean, the character of Becky does fit the type of role she was playing in like 1992. Yeah. Of like, you know, yeah. and like Poison Ivy 2 or whatever. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so maybe that too was her going like I've moved beyond that era of my career now I'm I'm not the killer sexy girl who moves in and, t- and steals the husband that's not me anymore mm-hmm. it's interesting she's great as Sophie though this is I, I looked it up Sophie appears on other episodes but not voiced by Drew this is the only time she played her surprisingly voiced by Natasha Leone. I, I like that casting I think no, that's, she's great uh, yeah I mean Natasha Leone is a great I mean she's a really great actress I 
like her as a voice actor. She plays Smokey Quartz on Steven Universe, one mm. of my favorite sporadically appearing characters. She totally fits for Sophie. And Natasha Leone is also one of those actors that I'm constantly like, wait, really? She's straight? really like i at least uh, this uh, this was according to my research she is like only straight hmm. i'm still drew barrymore openly by and for a longer time than a lot of famous actresses that are. is true yeah she came out publicly in like 2003 but i feel like i heard that she was by way before that yeah i, feel, I think i did too i feel like in the 90s she did interviews of like oh i love hugging women or women are hot like yeah she's i feel like i knew she was bisexual before angelina jolie i knew i uh, heard that she was but yeah me too but uh, but again, apparently Natasha Leone's straight. I just, I don't get it. You're hearing it's it crazy. here first, folks. <laughs> have you guys heard any of the episodes where Natasha Leone plays the character? I have not. Uh, I, I watched did... a little bit of her in the E! My Sports episode. Okay, how, how does it sound? She's good. I mean, she's uh, pretty much just doing her Leone voice. Okay. You know? But she's she's good at it. And I mean, it fits for the, I guess Leone doesn't have as much innocence to her as Sophie does. Like, uh, like uh, as Drew mm-hmm. plays the character. I think it's interesting that she comes back for episodes that aren't really framed around Sophie. So Sophie didn't appear for like decades. And then all of a sudden she started appearing again. And in that esports episode, she's just one of the Springfield elementary kids and they act like they're always friends with her. And Natasha comes back to play that character even when she's just doing minimal work in the episode. I can't imagine what prompted them to be like, you know who needs to come back and be part of the regular crew? Sophie. I feel like it's a moment of someone remembering Sophie. Yeah. Like, hey, doesn't Krusty have a daughter? Oh yeah, Sophie. They they have no distinct women beyond Janie and Sherry and Terry. Uh, girls in in class uh so i'm and glad Alison taylor who talks sometimes she's another one who's a one-off star who gets folded into like the recurring like springfield elementary kids i think sophie's <laughs> too distracting to just be in a scene that's true yeah she looks like, she looks like crusty <laughs> it's like seeing kent brockman's daughter around and you're like well what? <laughs> i know who that character is they've started to bring her back more often too so i'm um, i'm talking to you guys having completed an entire watch through of every simpsons episode ever wow. this year Man. i started in january and i just finished a few weeks ago so um i spent a lot of fucking time with the simpsons this year <laughs> um, i ill-advisedly decided to to make a supercut of every LGBT joke ever on the history of The Simpsons. And then I spent all of last year in quarantine watching every episode of The Simpsons to get all the gay jokes that ever happened and then put them in a video. And now it's on YouTube. And I, I, I guess I can die now after this, after we record the podcast. At least. It's, it's really great. I hope if you listeners haven't seen it yet, it's a great afternoon viewing. Like it, uh, there are more gay jokes than you could possibly imagine over 30 years of a show two and a half hours worth of gay jokes and it'll only grow over time are you gonna (laughs) do you hope to update it every season or (laughs) i will when the season's complete and um people have already been tweeting at me and being like hey there's a gay joke in this episode that aired in part of season 32 i'm like when it's when it's done i don't need to do this on a week week to week basis thank you it's a it's a living project Yes, it will be. It's like the thing I shackled myself to for the rest of my life or until The Simpsons ends, which we'll see who outlives who. You may need to find a successor for this project. (laughs) (laughs) Season 80. But um, little Brockman girl shows up more and more often. Like, there's just weird decisions with the Simpsons staff about like, hey, this character needs to show up more often. Or like the Frank Sinatra kid. You know who I'm talking about? He yeah. shows up more. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, there's an episode I'm like, oh, him. He's back. Okay. Jessica Lovejoy doesn't talk, but she shows up a lot more. And someone's making some weird decisions behind the scenes there. Man. Well, in our season two revisit, we're definitely keeping an eye on like, okay, this is the time period in which these episodes were being watched by the writers again. And that aligns with the return of certain plot elements and characters where it's like they saw Carl from Simpson and Delilah. Oh, let's get, let's bring Carl back. He was mm. fun. Harvey uh, Firestein does not want to come back. So they get Scott Thompson 
Johnson instead. There's like lot, <laughs> lots of little elements you can tell like, oh, they were rewatching these at the time. So in that case, you can directly trace it to like events in the writer's lives. Do you think they were just rewatching them in syndication like we all were? It, it Maybe it's that. I think could too. be. Well, I also think this is a real Hollywood dad episode and it could be more of the writers were getting adult or older children and they're like, you know what? We could do more with uh, Krusty's uh, Hollywood daughter. Like, let's do stuff with that. I Or also it could just be, you know, I saw the first time she really got another speaking role was the 2016 Christmas episode. So it mm-hmm. could also just be a response to, you know, people saying uh, there's not a lot of uh, important women on the in the show or you could you could beef up the female quotient in the cast, perhaps. I, I It could be a response to that as well. I could see that. Also, that Christmas episode is not bad. It's all about Sophie, who's raised not Jewish because her mom's not Jewish, learning about being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And it's something you don't really see in a sitcom that often. It's kind of a nice thing. I will check that out this holiday then. Man, Drew, you are now more informed on us in Simpsons just from having watched like all of the last uh, 18 years of the show after this season. I'm going to be flashing to the future a few times. I hope it's not too obnoxious, but I couldn't, I can't not do it now because like those are the episodes I've seen most recently and my brain's just really kind of turning to mush with the Simpsons right now. I want to hear about it. it. Yeah, well, because I think of this episode too, not as Sophie's debut, but as we'll talk about them later, but this is a breakout episode episode for two Mm. uh, characters I think of when I think of modern Simpsons recurring bits like the disco stews of modern Simpsons but that is true before we begin I want to do a writer's corner for the two writers of this episode John Frank and Don Payne uh, they made their debut with the Halloween episode but there was so much to talk about in that episode I saved their writer's corner for this one so John Frank yes Professor Frank he is named after John Frank. I think his name was established in the 22 short stories about Springfield episode. You know, I think in the script in season two, it was John Frank just as a funny really? name. Okay. I, I, I read one interview with Frank, him, John Frank, about it. Like, hey, why is he named this? He's like a writer friend of mine put it in the script in season okay. two. So, but I guess the first time it was said was uh, Professor Frank. I think so. I'll make you laugh. Yeah. I'll make you think. That's like, that's like Jailbird was never said yeah. out loud, but they knew him as Jailbird. Okay, so I must have gotten bad info because I don't know where I read it, but I read that it was a coincidence and that doesn't seem likely at all that John Frank would join a show with there's a character already named John Frank. That that seems false, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, okay. I swear I read at least one interview where Frank John Frank is like, yeah, that's named after me. There yes. were some characters yeah. on the show named after people they knew, like uh, Dr. Julius Hibbert was named after yeah. Julia Hibbert, who was Julia Sweeney now. So yeah, there, there was some of that in the air back then. But yeah, uh, yeah Frank and Payne, uh, they became writing partners right out of college. Frank wanted to write for TV. Payne wanted to write for movies. And they agreed to pursue whichever side of the entertainment industry responded first. And that was television. So some of their first scripts were for forgotten 90s sitcoms like Hope and Gloria, Pride and Joy. You say those words to me, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> I've heard them before, but not in that order. <laughs> I was I, I was a sad little gay boy who watched Hope and Gloria on like Saturday nights on NBC because uh, that was what that was my social life. So what it was Hope and Gloria? Cynthia Stevenson and Jessica Lundy were mismatched friends, and uh, Jessica uh, the guy the dad from Veronica Mars was uh, like the schlubby ex husband of Jessica Lundy. Oh, I'm trying yeah. to think of Jessica Lundy. Jessica Lundy was in that Tom Arnold movie The Stupids, and she plays Jerry's girlfriend with a really annoying laugh on Seinfeld. Okay, okay. yeah, I remember that show. 
vaguely uh, now. Oh, Alan Thicke was on it. He played a uh, dumb talk show host. Oh. oh, yes. Now I remember it. Now wow. I remember Alan Thicke playing basically Alan Thicke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they wrote one of those. Pride and joy, I don't know what that is. It sounds like competing detergents. <laughs> Pride, joy, fab. Uh, so, yeah, they would go on to become full-time writers and producers on Veronica's Closet, which was famous oh. just because it was put on Mussy TV Thursday. Yeah. That's too bad. That was another show about taunting a guy who's straight and calling him gay all the time. The Wally Cox character in that. Wait, yeah. Wallace Langham. Wallace, Wallace Langham. Wally Langham. Yeah. Yes, from Mission Hill. Mission Hill. I, the I, lead I, of Mission Hill. Yeah. Wally I, Cox is a much older actor. That's yeah. why I was confused. He was gay or gay? Well, I guess gay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they went from Veronica's Closet to the very short-lived Brian Ben Ben show. Four of nine episodes produced aired, and uh, in the interim between. Between those things they would write a few episodes of men behaving badly so not the best sitcom work they're doing for these shows man yeah this is not uh the pedigree of a simpsons writer in, in usual cases that not to say i think these guys are bad right i think they're funny funny writers but uh it's interesting that this this was their background prior to simpsons i i agree it doesn't seem like a good pedigree and it, i think it kind of shows i i'm surprised this episode led to lengthy simpsons careers for both of them because i don't think this episode is very good Ooh, i actually like this episode Oh no! Well, I'll be in the middle here. We on can this, we can fight it out. <laughs> but I have a I have a quote from Payne saying how they got into the series. It says, "Quote: uh, My partner and I were actually working on one of a long string of failed sitcoms, and most sitcoms are failed sitcoms. On the day a show is officially canceled, it's kind of a tradition for the writing staff to go out to a restaurant, eat a nice meal, and drown their sorrows. On the way there, a writer named Jace Richdale, who had also worked on The Simpsons, told my partner and me that The Simpsons was looking for some writers. He wanted to know if we'd be interested in it because he would recommend us. My jaw literally." really drop so he contacted the showrunner a guy named mike scully who read our spec script and met us and then hired us on so at the failure dinner for the brian benman show they run into jace richdale who recommends them to work on the show and that's how they make it onto the show wow that just Jesus. it's just luck like that man if and if the brian benman show had been slightly more successful they might not have gotten a job on the simpsons and by the way brian benman great name he was the lead of dream on and drew i loved your dream on episode of oh, gayest, yeah, pod, a gayest episode ever thank you uh um, it gave me a fun chance to look back and uh, remember that Brian Benman is kind of hot. <laughs> I watched uh, yeah. that show as a kid for the eight seconds of nudity included in every episode. <laughs> I didn't know that because I only watched the reruns on Fox where they cut out all the boobs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that was my experience of watching the reruns on Fox, but my family got HBO as the last season of the show was airing, and that's when I was like, oh, there's boobs all over the place in this thing. And I also didn't know the um, one of the women on the show, Danny, was, was uh, a lesbian too that was that was interesting oh, right right yeah. first gay snl cast member that we know of, i think mm -hmm. so more on frank and pain uh, they would remain writing partners on the show until season 15's the wandering juvie and both would still write episodes on their own after that and the split was amicable between them yeah it's uh, it sounded like pain got eventually what he wanted to work in movies mm -hmm. like i guess you know eventually these writing partnerships you you do kind of just grow apart well also it is especially i know in the simpsons writers room but i'm most shows if you are a pair of writers you get you split a check you are getting paid less than the average writer because you're sharing it as a writing pair 
Yeah, so they would both write their own episodes while Payne was uh, screenwriting. So his first film was uh, 2006's My Super Ex-Girlfriend. I don't know what the movie's about. It's very confusing. Kind of a... It's, uh, it, it, is not a it is not a good film. It's a very sexist movie, honestly. No. I was making a joke about the very obvious title, like Hotel for Dogs. Oh, yeah. It's, like, oh, it's right okay. there in the title. <laughs> I, I get you. I get you. You're funny. He would also co-write uh, Fantastic Four, Rise of Silver Surfer, and also Thor and Thor colon The Dark World. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. As uh, as the superhero guy here, I'll just uh, speak to those that like. Okay, Rise of Silver Surfer is both better than the first Fantastic Four film it's a sequel to, but it's also a giant mass and, and trash. And uh, the first Thor film, I never thought they'd make Thor work as a movie. So the fact that it did is really good. And then uh, the second Thor film, again, I wouldn't blame Don Payne, but it's like one of the worst MCU movies, but it's just because like it has the most boring villain they ever had in the whole series, in, in any MCU film. Who is who is the villain in that movie? I can't even remember. It's like an elf or something? It's a dark elf uh, who is played by... A dark elf? Yeah, it's a dark... Uh, well, yes, they're from one of the nine realms, and I they, see. Uh, they get what ultimately ends up being... So they get a red mist that then they say, actually, this red mist was one of the Infinity Stones, and it it's, uh, it's the reality infinity stone so they can go through different realities and at about the 40 minute mark in the film Loki shows up and the film comes alive it's like oh thank fucking god Loki's here to be fun I mean Ragnarok is the third Thor film so much better hey, but... he only co-wrote these movies no, I don't, outside but... of the first one well, I like, mentioned no, nobody writes some MCU film it's it's it's, it's true. Some of the most pr- uh, controlled by executives films there are so I I wouldn't blame Don Payne at all FF movie he wrote the best thing they did in that was that the first movie was like oh we're pg-13 thrills and we're gonna show you jessica alba in her underwear and the, the second movie they're like you know what kids like the first one more so we're making this pg and we're not gonna bother with mm. the needless underwear bits in this second one and unfortunately mm. uh don Payne passed away in 2013 at age 48 of Very bone sad. cancer and then two of his episodes would air uh, posthumously uh, white christmas blues and labor pains so those aired after he passed away and i believe uh, one of them was in tribute to him there's like a little in memoriam thing yeah after the episode i think they inserted him into the scan pan across the um they they drew him into the show at some point too uh posthumously so i mean i i felt really sad talking uh thinking back on our interview with dan graney and we asked him you know like oh what's the uh, you know you have these new writers in there these young writers we asked what it was like and he he said he, re- he used that to just say like he really missed his friend don Payne, Aww. who he thought was a really great writer and miss, misses him in the room that was that was sad uh john frank though still alive and still writing episodes for the show his last one was season 32's the seven beer itch and more importantly neither guy is from harvard it's, so, it's still incredible to me uh, yeah, Payne yeah. went to ucla and frank went to emerson and <laughs> so, also so not community college dropouts or anything no no though. still good colleges yeah. and also uh a note about Payne. i think Payne is one of three uh now dead simpsons writers along with sam simon and kevin curran who is also the voice of buck the dog and married with children right Right. No. Because he was a writer on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, everybody, this is Bob Mackey. Uh, You just, you probably heard me talking earlier. So, why am I introducing myself? I don't know. But uh, as of this uh, recording right now, it's February 18th. 
we recorded the original episode Insane Clown Poppy on December 11th of 2020. And I remember saying in that episode, oh, it's odd that only a few Simpsons writers have passed away. So we had uh, Sam Simon, I think I believe. Uh, I think I, I mentioned him and also uh, J. Michael Mendel, who I might have mentioned, of the few regular Simpsons writers who had passed away since then. But since that episode was recorded, mm-hmm. two additional Simpsons writers have passed away. Uh, the first one was David Richardson, who passed away on January 18th of 2021. And uh, he was the writer of Homer Loves Flanders and a, and a writer, regular writer in season five. So he passed away towards the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, uh, sadly, the, the writer Mark Wilmore, who was a writer in the teen years on The Simpsons, who also wrote for the PJs yeah. and uh, a lot of stuff in Living Color, lots of stuff with his brother, uh, Larry Wilmore. Uh, and also Mark Wilmore was involved in one of the uh, the classic writer's room pranks we've heard all about. On Matt Selman, yeah. On Matt Selman. He, he passed away. And, Just uh, nine days later. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and of COVID-related uh, illness, too, which is very, very sad. So unfortunately, yes, uh, we, we were not, we are no longer correct that to, uh, there's only a few Simpsons writers who passed away. I hope I hope we don't have uh, another update like this very soon. <laughs> yes, uh, and this episode still has some time before it goes out. No one else better die, or else yes, I'm going to be yeah. steamed. Yeah. But we'll talk more about Mark Wilmore when we get to his first episode in a few years or so. But yes, it's very sad. And uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that as the show reaches its 32nd year, we're starting to see the writing talent pass away from the not even the uh, early years, the later years too. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, So stay healthy out there, guys. The Simpsons will be right back. We hope you guys played safely with your fireworks this week, listening to the podcast. A big thank you to our guest, Drew Mackey from the Gayest Episode Ever podcast. Be sure to check out his recent video cataloging all of the LGBT characters and jokes in Simpsons history that he talked about in this episode. And if you're a fan of this podcast, I want to thank you because we only are able to do this our full-time jobs because of listeners like you who support us at patreon.com slash talking Simpsons. You see, every week... Me and Bob put out Talking Simpsons and What a Cartoon and $5 and up supporters at patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons get those a week early for their support. Plus, they get access to a giant back catalog of our many exclusive to Patreon podcasts, including over 80 episodes of miniseries covering Futurama, King of the Hill, The Critic, Mission Hill, and right now, each month, $5 a month patrons get a brand new Talking Futurama to listen to. And at the end of this month, there'll be a brand new season of Talk King of the Hill. That's just the start of a huge back catalog of exclusive podcasts you get if you're a $5 a month patron at patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. But if you want something fancier than even four aces, you should sign up at the premium $10 level at patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. All that $5 stuff I just mentioned, in addition to that, 10 bucks a month gets you our monthly premium What a Cartoon movie podcast. Each month, me and Bob cover, often over for four hours, an animated feature film in the same way we cover The Simpsons. 
This month, we're going to be talking about DuckTales the movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp. The month before that, we did the Studio Ghibli classic, Whisper of the Heart, and we have a giant back catalog. You want to hear us talk for five hours about the end of Evangelion? Or for four hours about the Beavis and Butthead Do America film? Over two years worth of podcasts of me and Bob covering animated feature films just like we do The Simpsons. So please sign up for $10 a month today to get it all at patreon.com slash talking simpsons. I'm sorry, but we have one more thing to add to this preamble, and yeah. that uh, Frankenpain's script for this episode was based on a spec sp- uh, spec script they wrote for the critic. Yes. So uh, that's Which, where this comes from. It bleeds through this so much. Like, so if you think to yourself, okay, what would a critic episode be about? Where first he visits a book fair in New York with all these famous uh, authors, and then. Yeah. It's about a single dad who's having trouble connecting with his kid. That's like every Marty episode of The Critic. And then the ex-wife stuff in here is 1,000% The Critic. Like, oh, Okay, wait, wait, wait. I thought about this and I actually deleted it from my notes. I'm like, I don't need to mention this because this is stupid. I did not know that. Do you think that Sophie's mom kind of looks like Alice a little bit? Mm. Oh, you know, she does uh, hair wise. She looks like Alice, but she dresses like Ardith, the evil, the yeah. evil ex-wife. <laughs> True. I wonder if that was intentional. That's super interesting. I think there was just a lot of ex-wife humor on the critic. My mm. reading of it was, and there's no correct reading of it because we don't know what the spec script was. My reading was that in the spec script, uh, Homer was Jay and Jeremy was a celebrity that has, oh. uh, because he would be more the type to have like an illegitimate child. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Now, I, mm. that, fit, that fits for me. I well, also, Or Duke. Or Duke Phillips. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's even funnier. R.I.P. Manic. But, you know, when they say spec script, that goes more into the theory I've been throwing. We've been throwing around a lot on here, which is there were multiple scripts <laughs> produced for an unmade season three of the critic. And we wonder, we've never read one of those actual scripts. And I feel like the reason they're not out there is because some of them were just fully cannibalized into Simpsons episodes, which like, I mean, legally, I don't know. Probably the WGA might have some issues with that, but it's like Gracie owns both of them, so I guess they can use them. I mean, I think we talked about it on the Food Critic episode. That had to be a critic episode, right? 1,000%. I mean, and that one's a Gene-written one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, Drew? No, I was going to ask which ones you guys guessed were like covert critic episodes. I definitely think that one. Simpson uh, Tide. And Simpson Tide absolutely is one too. Yeah. Those. Okay. Yeah. Well, definitely when there's a, I will say just markedly once Gene comes back on, there's a lot more watching TV and commenting on a TV show or a movie, uh, which just feels like critic jokes that came back into yeah. the show yeah and he and mike reese they started in parody so they're mm. like they, they love parody the most lisa Sachs, that's another one that feels like it's home to a lot of critic mm. jokes not a, necessarily a full critic script of just character replacement 
but multiple jokes that are just like oh that's a that feels very critiquey also i mean in this one the whole kuwait thing i'm like well that's what the desert storm was a full episode of jay as well yeah yeah i can totally see it and i could totally see them writing a thing where jay had sex with a woman in uh iraq but <laughs> uh but yeah so i guess that now we're finally finally out of the preamble <laughs> uh and so the episode begins with a, a bullet time couch gag just to really set you in the year 2000 it's uh, that'd be tough a to lot animate. of work yeah. it's easy to write on the page uh, matrix joke yes yeah this episode's opening as far as this i feel like the episode could easily begin at the book fair it has like yeah like i feel like it has two unrelated set pieces the crusty doesn't need to be at the book fair but that means traditional for there to be an unrelated set piece but there are two of them yeah Mm. and i think this uh this bit here as a cartoon about homer being an asshole is funny and it's full of silly things but in an episode that wants you to care about fathers and their daughters (laughs) what an insane way to start this episode it is kind of nice to see homer and bart collaborating on a project together and like not being like antagonistic towards each other but like who the fuck thought it would make sense to not frame it around homer and lisa which was a much smarter parallel and then also where we're going like the whole wrecking the room thing is something they did like what the previous season or maybe two seasons ago with the whole when they turn lisa's room into a cell yeah tower. yes we yeah. did cover that one it was it was it was back in late season nine so yeah i mm. now they do such horrible things to li- this episode well this is the string of this era of lisa must be hurt punished or punished she must yeah. every time we just did the treehouse where it's like the core plot of the night of the dolphins is lisa cares about dolphins and for caring she must be punished i i kind of mm. like this as an unrelated short to start the episode sure. there's a lot of fun gags i do like the off-screen explosion of maggie's room it's a perfect That's like a audio thing. joke uh and and barton homer definitely in the year 2000 jackass was just getting started so oh, yeah they they were engaging in what was popular but it's not just that it's the boys being little rascals but it's also the women are both scolds like it's the mm-hmm. funny the drawing of marge with um a bunch of watermelon in her hair but when she's like didn't i give you chores like that's <laughs> that's such a, uh, a, a that's a parody of scoldy marge i mean take note of all the times lisa gets screwed over in this episode it's it's pretty funny it's like at least she- once an act screwed over and then she just kind of falls away and then we don't really think about her anymore which is weird but. <laughs> uh but yes they are exploding their chores with fireworks at the start of the episode <laughs> don't you two have a list of chores to do hey we just took care <laughs> of that dangerous melon that was threatening our garden yeah we're heroes but where's our parade <sighs> all right <laughs> open stuck drawer Alrighty. It's hopeless. Or is it? Yeah, it's hopeless. I said, or is it? I said it's... Oh. (laughs) Homer, what are you doing? Listen, do you want the job done right, or do you want it done fast? Well, like all Americans, fast, but... Clear! (laughs) You can't argue with results. You know, I was watching this again this morning, and I have to give it to the Foley people. That did sound like a drawer exploding. It did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and I like I like Bart saying like, well, like all Americans fast, <laughs> like uh, that's good. I but again, it's like Marge is a mega nag. That's how you start with yeah. Marge. We hear going do your chores, and then yeah. mm. uh, she's at least she gets to be silly. I mean, I guess a more boring way to write Marge in those moments would be like Homer, don't destroy that. Instead, her saying like, you know what? Can't argue with results. That's at least a joke. It lets her have fun. Um, I agree. I, I, I'm glad they gave her that much. I tried really hard to think of a reason for why this episode begins specifically with Homer solving problems with literally more firepower than they actually need. And the closest I could come up with, and on my show, we call this uh, a reach around when you're like <laughs> reading way too much into something and trying to come up with like an authorial intent that probably is not there. I maybe, maybe, maybe it mirrors what happens later in the episode where Krusty loses Sophie's violin and his solution, rather than just to buy a fucking violin and give her a fucking violin, he uh, ends up sneaking into a mafia house and there's a literal shootout, which is like, this was much more complicated and involved a lot more firepower than he needed to. Hmm. And maybe that sort of justifies this opening, but that is such a big reach. <laughs> and yeah, it, it is maybe the funniest part of the episode for me, but it just, there's nothing, there's no, there's not enough reflection of it later in the script to me. I, I like it as a reach around, but I think, I, I think totally this, uh, while they even say on the commentary, the third act had a big change from their original script, but yeah. I could also just see this this bit not even being in the original script because like we no we need like four more pages. Well, okay, Homer and Bart play with fireworks <laughs> for two minutes, and then they're gonna go to the book fair. Yeah, on the commentary, uh, I like this episode a lot, but on the commentary, they said it had a really bad table read and it was a holdover for the next season. And uh, they're like, sometimes we hold over episodes, uh, you know, to work on them more. Mike Scully goes, we call those bad episodes. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I yeah. Really got it. I... Uh, but I think it's fine. But I, I guess there were some problems with it because I guess it just didn't go well at the table read. And that, yeah. that could be a big make or break moment for a script. Hmm. Uh, then we get some uh, a quick joke about them destroying Santa's little helper's home. So they destroy. They make a pet unhappy too. They abuse a dog. It's great. I love the controlled demolition of his house. Great and, animation. Uh, yeah. Target date January two thousand seven. Once a far off mystical date in <laughs> yes. the future. Now way in the past. Not fourteen years in the past. Now yeah, that that joke works better in the year uh, in November of two thousand. To be completed in nineteen ninety four. God yeah, that's. Uh, you know what? That's just them stealing their old joke for themselves. <laughs> All right. So then the next scene, you know, I often complain about jerk ass home run here, but this is one of the examples that had completely left my mind until rewatching <laughs> this. And I now put this in the top five worst things he's done because it's not just that he cruelly destroys everything his daughter owns, <laughs> but, and not even that he does it on her birthday, but that he feels nothing about doing it. Like he doesn't feel <laughs> bad. He's just such total thoughtlessness and the it's, cruelty of it it's so over the top though that i found it funny like him asking her do you have, do you have friends or family you can stay with <laughs> yes it's funny <laughs> this must be a hard time for you he like he doesn't even take any responsibility he just is like yes. wow this must uh, be hard for you well that's that line that i talk about on the simpsons a lot of like if you just want me to throw up my hands and go this isn't a show about a family or real people with feelings it is a silly time of funny of funny lines and if i only want to feel that then that scene is funny. But then if later in this episode, they want me to like feel for Krusty reconnecting with his daughter and then turning to Homer for help, then I feel like it is uh, mm. counterintuitive to show me Homer thoughtlessly destroying Lisa's uh, entire room. <laughs> this is, this is what I'm talking about when I say that like just weird creative decisions that seem to be really in 
counterintuitive to what they ultimately want to achieve were being made here and i don't i don't i don't understand mm. it but it's 17 it's the 17th production episode in a season so they're also just getting tired you know uh, that i mean i guess it makes sense <laughs> i will point out that like when they blow up lisa's room they could have just wheeled the tv vcr out of her room and prevented this and that was not even considered for a moment that is how little they cared about lisa's room i have to think that homer sees that on a list and then bart bart did this knowingly like he's standing to the side of homer like smiling because he set homer up for this and he knows he can get away with it because homer will do it but well now that we don't have vcrs anymore this problem does not exist it's the dynamited vcr uh i guess a disc can get stuck in things still but if you're still using physical media these days some some are uh but yes lisa's room is destroyed in this next clip it's gonna take a lot of fireworks to clean this place up (gasps) what's going on here uh, honey, there's a point in every father's life when he blows up his daughter's room. Oh, yeah? You didn't blow up Maggie's room. <laughs> Lisa, this must be a rough time for you. Do you have any friends or family you can stay with? You've ruined all my stuff. Oh, come on. Tell us how we can make it up to you. Hey, pretend it's your birthday. It is my birthday. That's the spirit. Now, what do you want to do? Well, the book festival starts today. Anything at all. You name it. What do you want to do? And then when it cuts to the book festival, I forgot to get that clip in there. Homer even grumbles like, stupid Lisa. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, Homer. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the joke that Homer is so selfish that even going to a book fair to a day on his daughter's birthday after destroying everything she has is the last thing he would do. Like, it's good that we get away from what he did for the rest of the episode. I'm glad the episode isn't about that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Lisa even saying, like, it is my birthday. It's like, woof, ouch. And and Yardley plays it very real of just saying, like, you, you destroyed all my stuff. Like... Mm-hmm. I, you it's just played too awful. real, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad that we don't linger on this because it is like kind of unforgivably awful, but I do really wish that this had been more of a Homer-Lisa storyline just to parallel the crusty Sophie storyline. Yeah. yeah, I think that would have worked better, yeah. yeah. Yeah, though also for this being a crusty episode, Bart kind of gets shoved out of it too. Like Bart is usually the accessory to a crusty episode, but I guess he has more lines than Lisa after uh, the middle of this, but still. But so that even itself is weird because they're introducing a new young girl character who has two defining traits. One, she's Krusty's kid, and the other one is that she likes playing music, and they don't pair her with Lisa at all, and that seems like another <laughs> weird missed opportunity. Easily, the interaction that Sophie has with Bart early in the episode could have been Lisa, and they don't even fucking think to do that. Wow. She's, she's that, a regular Lisa Jr. Yeah, that music connection, I didn't even consider that. It, it's even easier to do. But again, Lisa at this time in the show is made to suffer, not have friends. Like <laughs> it's, it's about, I guess it also fits the, uh, Mike Scully's first episode of the series is when Lisa finds a rival who's better than her and everything, and she has to. <laughs> so Lisa's not even special anymore, and she has to suffer being second place. Okay. Uh, but yes, they had. This is also the second time it's been Lisa's birthday in the series. Is this is this oh, yeah. worse than her being abandoned? Well, that by dangerous a stranger didn't come by this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that episode never happened. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Oh, oh. you're right. So this is her first birthday. I think what we dreamed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, apparently this book festival is based on the UCLA slash LA Times Festival of Books. Uh, which has been going on since 1996, and they even did it virtually this year in 2020. Uh, it would have been in 
and when I say this year, I mean last year in 2020. <laughs> um, it would have happened in April of 2020, but they delayed it until October. And I think that's when they just threw up their hands like, it's virtual. Just here, we'll do it this way. I, 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 I've been to it. It's a it's a nice event. I was going to ask. Okay. I mean, does it must have a lot of cool author guests and all that? Yeah. And I can't remember why, but I know going to it one year. So my ex used to uh, like sort of produce the event. So oh. I had to go. I can't, I can't, but I kind of had to go. But um, I don't remember how it worked, but um, one time I interacted with Margaret Cho and that was nice. And then she ended up following me on Twitter. So that was, that was, that's hmm. a nice, that's uh. a nice <laughs> takeaway from not buying any books at the Festival of Books. Oh, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. I, uh, you mentioned Margaret Cho. I kicked myself the one time I found out like her and Bob Mould were doing something in, in San Francisco one day and I just missed it. I was like, ah, oh, man. But uh, if you ever get to see Bob perform live, he's amazing. It like it totally, totally worth the uh, the effort of going to a live show. He's uh, one of the few famous Bobs I respect. <laughs> I I am I mean he's one of those people I've been kick, kicking myself like how did I not go see him live in mm. in the before times and hopefully I get another chance. I mean I read I'll tell you what I read his biography his autobiography and I loved every bit of it. But I would have paid 10 times more for an entire book only about when he worked for WCW Pro Wrestling and was a writer for wrestling. Right. I, I interviewed him once and um, it is so when I interact with famous people, I don't really care about very, very famous people. But if it's a minorly famous person, I do kind of get tongue tied because I want to say something meaningful to them to like be like, hey, I really, really appreciate like what you're putting out into the world. And he was lovely. I was like a. Uh, unintelligible mess for that interview but the, the, the print the print product turned out fine uh but anyway back to this episode so they they they're walking around the festival of books we have a joke of millhouse selling poems and they mm-hmm. there's a rush on them and he says that their hands were everywhere which uh, like that's there's very uh, people really wanted those one dollar off uh, poetry book yes. coupons that's uh, kind of insane. I mean, these these jokes about books and stuff feel they definitely feel the more New Yorker style of a critic thing. Mm. Though, though we've talked about it many times, the Scully years are about the Simpsons going to a fair like five different times. Season eleven is the fair season. Lots of fairs and unfairs. <laughs> Uh, and and also uh, they head over to Reverend Lovejoy. He has a uh, Christian themed cookbook, which has like Stig muffins, which I get that. But like, OK, Mary Magdalene had sex. Right. Is that her thing? So that's why she has this chocolate orgasm. I believe so. Is there like a like a like a pastry called a chocolate orgasm or something? I found a recipe for making a chocolate orgasm uh, cake, which really is just like it's a devil food cake with like chocolate pudding inside was the recipe I saw. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there was kind of like a, a cum joke and that it squirts all over Tom Wolf. Oh, definitely. The orgasm a... hits Tom Wolf and I he's not doing his voice in the show. I think he I think he eventually would be on the show. Six years later in yeah. the episode, Mo in Elisa. Okay. I like how he just tears off his suit. There's another one underneath it. Famous uh, for his suits. Yeah, it's uh, a full tearaway suit on him. Really good animation on that. I like that it's just like, you know, pulling a uh, paper towel off of the uh, off of machine. 
my, my read was like, oh, yeah, Tom Wolfe, he wears white suits. Um, but I've never read any of his books. And then I'm like, wait, why do I know that his defining characteristic is wearing white suits? And I'm like, I think it's from this episode. <laughs> I He was one of those like public intellectuals like Gore Vidal, or, though mm. I've actually read some Gore Vidal and not Tom Wolfe. But uh, mm. then we get our, our first bookie guest star of the episode. Apparently, uh, Julie Thacker flew up to Maine to oh. record with this young man. I <laughs> I guess actually in, in safety with his age and uh, health scares, I should definitely play our anti-death jingle for this guest for this guest star. I'm talking about Stephen King, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, 18 months uh, after this or before this, rather, that's when he had his fatal or sorry, near fatal <laughs> van accident where he was walking and was struck by a van. Yes. And survived, yeah. thankfully. Very scary. That thing. Yeah. It's uh, they must. He has since recovered and he's, you know, still still having fun on Twitter. It's also funny. He has all this energy, even though, like, I assume he has gotten sober by the time he recorded this. Oh, yeah. But he's I it, unfortunately he doesn't have the same coke energy as he does in the trailer for maximum overdrive <laughs> that's great <laughs> as you go I'm literally gonna... i literally have in my notes that i thought he did a pretty good job for someone who's uh a non-actor guesting on the simpsons because sometimes that doesn't go so great um but i also say if you have ever seen the trailer for maximum overdrive you know that he can carry a scene also he is in a, uh one of the segments of one of the creep show movies playing this hick that oh, yeah. uh, is affected by uh, this meteor yeah. that falls. I think it's mostly a silent uh, piece, uh, but he does have some dialogue in that. Though, you know, now we talk about Maximum Overdrive, then they should have had Yardley Smith share a she- scene with him instead. That's the one he directed. That's not right. only wrote. So she worked, Yardley worked with him a lot. It's uh, <laughs> real fun to hear her talk about that. Uh, actually, there, there's a great episode of I Was There Too, the now uh, defunct podcast, where she's on it talking about, I believe, Maximum Overdrive. And basically, it was going so poorly that everyone was just drunk constantly on the yes. sets <laughs> just to get through the days. Uh, and and Stephen King himself said that he was like more than drinking on uh, working on yeah. that. But uh, I love his his read on this. It's a hot mic, I will say that, but oh, I yeah. love uh, I love how over the top he goes. Here, I'll, uh, I got the clip right here. So, Mr. King, what tale of horror and the macabre are you working on now? Oh, I don't feel like writing horror right now. Oh, that's too bad. I'm working on a biography of Benjamin Franklin. He's a fascinating man. He discovered electricity and used it to torture small animals and green mountain men. And that key he tied to the end of a kite, it opened the gates of hell! Well, let me know when you get back to horror. Will do. <laughs> hey, Mark saw the post-it note. I love that. Get back to Marge. <laughs> Uh, that's very, it's, uh, it's funny they gave Marge, like Marge is a fan of Stephen King. That's, uh, not what you'd expect to, which I like that. When he talks about Green Mountain Men, is he referring to the Green Mountain Boys? I or... think so, because that was, I, I hadn't heard of them before looking it up for this. Yeah, what but... is this exactly? It's a militia. Yeah, oh, okay. like a, rev- a revolutionary war militia, like, not, not modern day. I guess maybe there is a modern day militia that calls himself that too, perhaps, but... I was looking at to see what was out. Would you believe there was no Stephen King book in the year 2000? Probably the only book since like the 70s where there were, sorry, the only year since the 70s where he did not release a book because he was recovering from 
I'm right. almost dying, but this was between uh, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon and also Dreamcatcher and Black House. It's <sighs> too many books. And then he just wrote scripts that were like just a full just film script that wasn't a book. And and he had to make up that pseudonym to publish more books. Mm-hmm. I've never read a full one of his books. Really? They're just so daunt. They're just like giant. They are know? big. I got into I've seen them. a million of his movies, but I got into them as a teenager. Like I, I did read The Stand, The Unabridged mm. Stand. That was like one of my greatest feats as a teenager. I would suggest The Shining. It's uh, not as daunting as the other ones, and it's very, very good. It's one of the few times I can remember being scared to turn a page in a book, which is. A, a thrilling and weird feeling i have read that yeah that that is a good one <laughs> that's yeah. uh i know that's joey's favorite book on friends <laughs> I know that. but which by the time they finished that series of friends joey couldn't read like no they, no <laughs> uh but uh but yes we then get some quick gags with uh with frank and dr nick i i do really like the animation of uh professor frank attaching just going like well here's the electros to your loins like i mean it is a fantasy the loins <laughs> the, the fantasy of reading an entire book in a second that uh, i would love that there was a good joke on the ucb sketch show as well of like a a gun that just blasted out a sound that was the experience of reading right. a full book i i i've fantasized about such a thing though the last time i actually like sat down and read a book has been a while i just am mm. too much of an audiobook guy now if i if i listen uh, i i am quite learned but i didn't actually read a book this year and i normally <laughs> try to do uh not do that i try to read books so i just bought a kindle in, in the hopes that i would read books again you know you've got time at the time of this recording you got two weeks to read one book this it's year. true yeah. i'm gonna do it <laughs> and uh, we get to see dr nick has a miracle health plan that's just eat whatever you want and you might lose weight it's a free country yes stuff yourself sick diet i think yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, then we get a joke about the four dummies brand which is also very late 90s yeah uh so i did some research on this nothing too extensive but the first one was 1991's dos for dummies and uh they still make these books but the for dummies thing is so small on the actual title that it's just part of the branding and i think like dummies is problematic mm, yeah I so guess, uh, yeah. they don't want to lean too hard because on the old books dummies was huge like hey dummy yeah well i mean that bright and that bright yellow just like you know draws your eye on uh, uh off the shelf at a barnes and noble yeah more more than the complete idiot guides uh, i i always preferred the for dummies brand but it's funny that it started as a bunch of computer manuals that slowly morphed into just every topic. And it's different than the Complete Idiot's Guide, too. That's okay. a different, it's a total ripoff of dummies, and they also did the same thing. Made them a lot of money, though, that ripoff. Yeah. But yeah, well, and talk about things you can't do now, like the, the when Bart meets the dummy guy, he's, uh, this is not the kind of duh, duh idiot you can play on a TV show now. No, but I have some mind-blowing information for both of you, in that uh, throughout the book fair, Bart is wearing his lucky red cap a cut scene in this episode explains why because when the dummy goes me have to go to bank now the scene cuts there is a cut scene on the dvd where bart goes uh my hat is a bank and the guy empties a money bag into bart's hat but it's not money it's potato chips wow and the guy goes you rich now Huh. So that is why Bart has his cap on throughout this entire set piece. Wow, man. I Well, I'm also shocked that they actually kept that consistent. Like, once you do the joke, even if you cut it, you don't have him wear it in the next scene with Krusty, but that it stays on even after that. Yeah. It's so distracting, Bart's lucky red hat in that scene. I think that's why you don't do a Bart hat joke anymore uh, because... They kept the hat on him. I know Mike Reese jokes, he says, when he hears other... He said... 
like a decade into his tenure on the show, he'd hear younger writers joke about like Bart's lucky red cap, like, oh, let's bring it back. And he's like, <laughs> guys, I'm right here. Come on. <laughs> Thank you for telling me, though. I was wondering about that. And I don't have access to the DVDs for this, so I have not seen deleted scenes. I also thought it was a, a small joke that Cletus and Brandine were shopping yeah. around in there. They are, they're the for dummies. Audience. They are dummies. Call me Ishmael dummy. That's an okay joke. But yeah. I mean, this is just a series of sketches about books, yeah. really. Which, yeah, that's that's really what these first acts are, especially in the Scully years of like a series of sketches. Which, I mean, Ian Maxstone Graham is more in control in this time, too. And he's, he's Mr. SNL, like he's an SNL vet. Which we come into uh, play in this next clip I have oh, great. here. Yeah, look, hey, you gotta, we we have to hear. Guys, have you ever considered that Christopher Walken would be a funny idea? Look, Maggie, Christopher Walken's reading Goodnight Moon. Goodnight, room. Goodnight, moon. Goodnight, cow jumping over the moon. Please, children, scooch closer. Don't make me tell you again about the scooching. You in the red, chop, chop. So that's uh, Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to get the real guy, and he was making fun of himself at this point, right? He oh, was, yeah. He was, do- he was doing a version of himself, but he just wasn't available, so they got Jay Moore to do it. No, it's so weird. I can't imagine that they didn't have someone in the cast already who could do a decent Christopher Walken impression. That's like the one thing most people who do voices can do. <laughs> uh, Kevin Spacey, what a master of it. Uh, no, it's, I'm sorry to even say his name. Uh, Ian, <laughs> Ian Max- Kevin Pollock. Yes, mm-hmm. Kevin Pollock. That's a, that's a good one, yeah. But it is the one everybody does. It's like, I, though you can appreciate like oh that's a good one of the one everybody does but yeah the the more cowbell sketch aired seven months before this i couldn't believe that yeah wow so our generation was fully in the oh christopher walken he's the funny guy like he's if he now if christopher walken were to star in a film that is a dramatic part it would be very unexpected like that's just not what he does anymore though i guess really even if you go back to like annie hall annie hall i was thinking of that yeah yeah. his scene is that he's doing comedy as an intense uh character actor uh but the jay moore thing is because ian maxstone graham worked with jay moore on snl and remembered him as doing a good walk-in impersonation but i think too it was that he was in the fox family at the time uh they would have recorded it because action was right. airing on fox at the time the jay moore starring sitcom action is one of the meanest shows ever that aired on on mainstream network tv agree but also it made me laugh and oh, yeah. uh was more interesting than a lot of stuff that was on tv back then and one of the last the last episode of it, which didn't air until the Comedy Central re-airings of it, is about how uh, Harvey Weinstein is horrible. And they were making that right. joke in the year 2000. So, mm. um, yes. It's weird to have him on here because we've established that Stephen King is doing his own voice. And then we get into this weird gray area of like, but some of these people are not doing their own voice. And we actually brought in this other famous person to do a voice. And it makes me wonder why they stuck with jokes if the people who would have done those voices done their own voices were not available does that make sense yeah. maybe they thought they could get everybody just right. because uh, like all these book nerds will want to come on oh they can't they won't <laughs> yeah tom they, clancy said no he'd be on the show actually in the future yeah it's true yeah i i i think they probably thought like oh any author will say yes to us there we're tv you know but i i saw one rumor online but i couldn't see it substantiated of saying like a walk-in actually like turned down the money he thought it wasn't enough money but mm. i i don't know about that i i but definitely whenever scully says like oh you know it could have been him but there was a schedule 
scheduling problem. Anytime I hear scheduling yeah. problem, I think that's the cover for somebody difficult or something else. Though also, I feel like there's an intentionality to the design of the character that it looks like Jay Moore dressed as Christopher Walken <laughs> to me. It doesn't look like Christopher Walken even. He, he doesn't have red hair, right? I mean, I guess he's... Uh, he was like uh, Silver Fox by that point, right? Oh, by then, <laughs> sure, yeah. The, the, the yeah, streaks his, of gray were coming His in. hair is like, uh, it's a strange color, yeah. It looks like a guy on SNL wearing a wig for the funny scene of like, what if Christopher... I mean, that also is just kind of a... I, it's such a stock. I, in 2000, maybe it was a little fresher, but like... It was, it was. Sure, but I mean, I don't know. It, it's right there with like, isn't it funny to hear somebody read Go the Fuck to Sleep? Like, I guess. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but yes, we then get to the audience question joke, which I feel like this is a comment by the Simpsons writers about what it's like to go to public appearances that they'd started doing by the 10th season and being asked bad questions like, how much do you make? Like, yeah. now there's much worse audience questions you can get at a panel, I think. And uh, talking about things they wouldn't do now, uh, there's a funny bit of Lenny asking about the B2 bomber, but he actually was asking it to Maya Angelou, not Tom Clancy. Uh, Maya Angelou does a, a poem about the B2 bomber uh, performed by Tress McNeil. Tress McNeil, not a black woman. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't be done now. Yeah. No, but... Oh, uh, the, the, the sign gag, I do like Bart doing one of his old bits, but it's pointing out like these were never that funny and they're kind of hard to do. Yes. I like how Bart <laughs>, laughs and then is disappointed. Yes. So he, he changes the future of reading to the future of breading yes. and he just, he laughs. He's like, nah. Uh, that's, I do really love that. That's them commenting. I'm like, these are a lot of effort and wh what's the point, you know? Uh, but then we get another, you know, it's only been a few minutes since something mean was done to Lisa. Yeah, so. let's make her pay. Uh, so, but we have our other, another big guest for this episode. Miss Tan, I loved the Joy Luck Club. It really showed me how the mother-daughter bond can triumph over adversity. No, that's not what I meant at all. You couldn't have gotten it more wrong. But Please, just sit down. I'm embarrassed for both of us. <laughs> and then Homer avoids eye contact with her because he's, he's so Lisa. embarrassed for her. Lisa just gives the thesis of the book to yes, her. That's the entire, I mean, that is the joke that Amy Tan is saying that, well, the obvious thesis of the Joey Luck Club isn't true and that you were wrong. But like, the, I mean, that Lisa, that Lisa gets to meet a woman in, of literature who she so looks up to and that hero like chews her out in front of everybody and humiliates her i'm like god damn why why must you be this mean to lisa she'll be tormented by a uh a manta ray later too yes mm -hmm. that's I, the last thing she gets to do in this episode no there's one other bad thing they have her do oh, after the yeah. manta ray but i just remember the joy luck club uh there weren't any real stories about chinese people given to uh mainstream culture and it's like i think i think my family like learned about chinese people through the movie like oh yeah oh there are chinese people and they have stories <laughs> no i i it was eye-opening for me in like high school to be assigned the book like i i read the book in high school and i and i i did enjoy it and i uh, and it, it is absolutely about a mother-daughter bond that's uh, across generations. Um, have you guys seen the movie, both of you? Uh, yeah, a long time if ago. If I did, it was in the 90s, so a very long time ago. 
I was flipping through channels and I'm like, oh, it's the Joy Luck Club. I've never seen this movie. And I like Ming-Na. I think she's just amazing to watch mm. in anything. But she was not in the scene I was watching. The actress in this scene was Lauren Tom is in Joy Luck Club. Really? Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I got to watch this again, knowing knowing and appreciating the work of Lauren Tom. Amy so Wong much. herself and also Con Jr. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, man. man. Yeah. yeah. And man. <laughs> and, uh, well, and also, you know, we talk about Amy Tan and Stephen King. They have a connection to Matt Groening as well. Right, they're all in the Rock Bottom Remainders, the the rock and roll writer band, right? Yes, the the <laughs> ch- uh, well, only for charity. They're not like yeah. a real band. Basically, them and say Dave Barry and Mitch Album and a bunch of other writers. They come together and cover songs like they, yeah. And I believe a remainder is a book you send back because you can't sell it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And Rock Bottom would be the cheapest that book would be. I mean, we get an NRBQ song later in this episode, but uh. at least we are not subjected to the music of the Rock Bottom Remainders, which I'm sure is fine, but like. Like, we don't need it. I'd prefer it. I've heard too much NRBQ in my <laughs> lifetime at this point. Uh, we all have. Well, I did find a clip of Matt Groening explaining uh, what it was like to join the Rock Bottom Remainers. And you'll get to hear a little bit of them in the background. I must admit, I was a little reluctant, but I'm not the only one. There were some phone calls back and forth between members of the Rock Critics Chorus saying, what have we got ourselves into? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This is really bad. This is really bad. Because we knew, you know, as an ex-rock critic myself, what could happen to us as performers being reviewed by the likes of us. There you go. Okay. But it's like it's basically like three dozen people on stage, so it's a, you can't really single out one They're person. They're like arcade like, fire, right? <laughs> We go from that to Krusty the Clown and his book signing. This book title, by the way, what a weird pull, because I'm just learning this now. Uh, Krusty's book is called Your Shoes Too Big to Kickbox God, and it is the parody of an 80s Broadway musical called Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. I I don't know. I don't know why. Such Such a deep cut. Maybe one of the deepest cuts this show's ever done. Are you familiar with this musical, Drew? I don't know musicals at all, so no. I only know this from, like, retroactively trying to trace what the hell this title came from. I do know it is... uh, I don't know the musical, which actually it's also from a a phrase coined by writer, civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson, though I didn't know that either. But I knew it as a term that you would just like hear in lyrics or said around in the in the last 20 years i'd hear it a lot like there's uh it's it's like in some some hip-hop lyrics some other song lyrics i also know it as a thing a pro wrestler of mine one of my favorites cm punk uh he threatened somebody with like you can't beat me your arms are too short to box with god and so i think it's now just like uh as just a saying Mm. you say about like you're not basically to say you're not strong enough to defeat me that's that's how i've heard it used but uh in in the year 2000 to pull that as the title of a book like that that's a crazy uh pull it's on the screen for a long time they're going uh (laughs) see we did it It takes a long time to read it and then i guess you know we have another guest you know i got a reason to play the jingle here yay death stalks you at every turn Ah, there it is 
John Updike passed away in January of 2009 at age 76. Uh, funny story, I guess, is that uh, I went to Cleveland to see uh, Cinematic Titanic, Joel Hodgson's riffing group, uh, before everyone got back together again. And even though uh, John Updike died, they printed out the flyer too early or the, uh, the, the, the pamphlet or whatever, whatever says the list of events. Mm. And he was still on there after he died. Oh, as wow. He was going to be there the next week. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> oh, uh, on the commentary, which has uh, Joe Montaigne on it, uh, so he kind of takes it over. There's not there's not as much space to talk about the episode on it, but uh, they they actually mention like, oh, there's John Updike. He just died. Like yeah. they recorded it within a week of the uh, of his passing. And has anyone read a John Updike book? I did. Nope. Which one was it? I was Run Rabbit Run. Oh, okay. The, uh, but it was in high school. So uh, whatever I say about my review of it is I read it as a teen boy who had no life experience. But as I recall it then, I went like, uh, it's, it was different for me to read a book about a guy who like had sex in it. I never read books where, where sex happens, but I just thought about like, eh, it's, it's about a, de a depressed uh, husband who wants to cheat on his wife. And it's just like a bummer, you know? No, I've never read one. Oh, I read Rabbit Run, and it was in a period of my life where I was very insufferable, where I think <laughs> I think we all go through this, and some people don't actually leave this period, where you're like, I will absorb the art that makes me seem smarter than I am. So it's like, oh, if I read this, I'll be actually smarter. So I would read a lot of books, especially books from the 60s that my older professors liked. So mm -hmm. they would try to be like, oh, all these books from the 60s are the best. So the best authors are like Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut and John Updike and John Cheever. And sometimes they'd be right. Like, Kurt Vonnegut is amazing. Catch-22 is great. But then I'd read something like Rabbit Run and think, like, I hate this main character. He sucks. It's all about <laughs> breaking free from this post-war plastic lifestyle, but at the expense of, like, every woman he meets. Right. He just is, like, the most insufferable main character. And there are two other books about him. I'm saying mm. Run, Rabbit Run. Sorry. Rabbit Run is garbage. I don't like it. It's hard <laughs> to read. The prose is amazing. John Updike's uh, A&P, I think the name of the story is. I'm such a bad English major. I, like, th he's a very famous American author, and I've just never even touched his body of work. Yeah, A&P by John Updike is an amazing short story. Like, he's amazing with prose, but just the the, this, the material within Rabbit Run was just so repulsive to me that uh, I was no longer excited to read the remaining two books. And I've broken out of that, uh, you know, part of my life. Now I, I love genre fiction. It's fine. But back then I was like, no, only the smartest books for smart Bob Mackie. That's what he reads. <laughs> uh, you want to be spotted reading Herman Hess and somebody's like, whoa, they're so, not very impressed. By the way, I am 21 and reading Catch-22. <laughs> Aren't I clever? Oh, you won't date me. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> See, when I could have read those ones, the, the influential teachers for me told me to read like Franz Kafka and so I was mm. like alright I'm super smart because I read Franz Kafka. Yeah for me it was all like the 60s writers that were kind of counterculture and I did read some Hunter Thompson then I will say that was the and I and I really like his prose I think they, they're good uh, they're all from a different era though but I think too the guys who were telling you to read John Updike they probably in their writing wrote stories about how they'd finally get to cheat on their spouse in 30 <laughs> years. Yeah and even people like this I, I'm going on too long about this English stuff but i i got a, I have a master's degree and i'm still paying for it so i need to use this information somewhere thomas pinchin i don't get it i'm sorry that's all i gotta say <laughs> don't get it i tried to do it future I, simpsons guess i just smashed into that wall of uh, pinchin pros i couldn't do it so i also was an english major only undergrad i did not go to grad school but i you're smart uh, yeah I, I i was but i should have i should have mentioned something else i guess i didn't like it i only fell back into it because this one very influential professor who specialized in southern lit like turned me back on to like studying literature because I liked her. But as a result, I've mostly just read Faulkner, which is 
great in oh, the yeah. very specific context, but it's not really helping me out in life at all and <laughs> uh, didn't make me a great writer. And um, no one else has really read uh, anything outside of like As I Lay Dying or Absalom, Absalom, and I can't talk to them about it. Mm. Man, you you're, know? now I got to I got to pick back up Faulkner now. I've only read a couple uh, like I, I got to read some more of that. But it's also funny to hear on the commentary that uh, Ian Maxstone Graham, uh, who seems like, you know, a very, you know, fancy man or a very well put together guy, him saying that he totally fanboyed out to John Updike and was like, you know, isn't Rabbit kind of like Homer? Like, that was, it's it was funny to hear that he, he even he can be a fanboy of stuff. Wait, did that does that mean that they brought John Updike into the studio to record this? This is really him. Yeah, say, it's really him. To, to say to his own name and then laugh. That's, that's so weird do you think he was like sort of insulted to be like that that's all you want me to do really i wonder if they recorded more lines and then just pretended they were going to be used i wonder they they don't mention how they got him in there but if i was john updike i'd be like that's what's in the fucking show come on something that surprised like, me about him is that he wrote the book the witches of eastwick and that's an amazing awesome movie mm-hmm. i didn't know he wrote that i did not either uh but yes why do we hear the wonderful two words that john updike says in this very important scene for crusty Book writing, what a scam, huh? It's only 20 pages long, and this guy wrote it for me. What's your name again? John Updike. Whoa, whoa, I didn't ask for your life story. So you really know Krusty? What's he like? Oh, he's wonderful. He would do anything for his fans. Hurry up, kid. Name? Hey, it's me, Bart. Your biggest fan. Hey, good for you, because I want to know that all my fans are, you know... <laughs> K the C. Hey, this pen's gotta last me all day. Now, if you could up, 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 up. Yeah. Name? My name is Sophie. Hey, good luck with that. I'm your daughter. <laughs> Mwah! I finally found my daddy. Go. They think I just seltered myself. <laughs> Shut up, Updike. You're right. He just says, I'm John Updike and laughs. laughs. Uh, he, he doesn't uh, even say I'm. He just says, John Updike. John Updike. Yeah. That's it. I just seltzered myself. Uh, that didn't make me ch- chuckle, but shut up, Updike. That I, I had a little laugh at that. And uh, and yeah, I also, I love Krusty not knowing Bart again, like not recognizing him. <laughs> I, it's fun how impersonal he is through all of this. Yes, yeah. And, and he's, as he goes, in just, I love hearing Dan mumble as and Krusty. when Sophie tells him her name, he's like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I wonder how much of that is based on Simpson staff going to signings mm. and how it feels. But, uh, but yeah, so... Uh, Sophie comes in and I do, I, I have a reach around myself of a guess of what it's based on, but, uh, lots of celebrities have out of wedlock children. Uh, but I think this is inspired if, uh, if anyone specifically would be on Liv Tyler. Oh yeah. Because Liv Tyler, she didn't know, she didn't meet her father, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith until she was 10. Uh, she was the, uh, she actually thought her father was Todd Rundgren, uh, for a time, mm. even though, uh, she said, apparently the story went that, once she saw a picture of Steven Tyler, she's like, I think that's my dad. And uh, that they then connected and Steven Tyler, you know, hadn't been a dad this whole time. But then once he meets his, his young daughter, he's like, he apparently really embraced being mm. a dad. And then, of course, put her in a, a classic of uh, the MTV era. He immediately sexualized his daughter. Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. 
what was going on with Liv Tyler's mom that Liv thought her dad was a different rock star? Oh, well, her mom, it was uh, Bo Bell, I believe her name was, uh, a, a former pay, Playboy playmate and uh, and model. So she had um. she had been with a lot of rock stars. And so she married Todd Rundgren for a time. Uh, and she was with Todd Rundgren when she became pregnant and had the child. Uh, but she also had uh, spent some time with Steven Tyler. And so uh, even though I believe Rundgren uh, also thought it was uh, his his daughter for a time. And so I wonder if he demanded like back child support from Steven Tyler after that. Mm. But, uh, you know, actually, where's there's there's no child support jokes in this episode. No, I, I was kind of shocked no. at that. You know, we're talking a lot about uh, great literary figures. We didn't even mention the ones this episode is named after, the Insane Clown Posse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the greatest minds of our time. That's mm-hmm. uh, when they made a joke about Insane Clown Posse in 2000. Who would have thought they'd be around still to this day? It's crazy. Even? Wait, they're, they're still around? Oh, yeah. They're yeah. Having, I don't know if they did the Gathering of the Juggalos uh, in, in the COVID year, but, uh, you know, it does those... seem, seem like something they would have done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those videos were great until people found out about them and they became mainstream. And I think they're trying to top the parodies now. Yeah. It's like when um, Trapped in the Closet became popular and it just... Uh, yeah, man, that's a bummer now to talk about that. But yeah. <laughs> Around since 1985, the uh, insane posse of clowns. See, Jesus. I know them too well because, again, the wrestling connection. They're, uh, the, the insane, they are. They they actually failed as pro wrestlers first and then got into rapping. And as they became popular rappers, they're like, we're starting our own wrestling league and we're going to wrestle in it. You guys are teaching me a lot about pop culture right now. This is, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah, well, when I say the gathering, that is shorthand for the gathering of the juggalos, I, which is an official thing, though. Honestly, I've learned it all from previous guest on the show, Nathan Rabin, who Mm, uh, that's right who went native as an icp listener he he was studying them as an outsider as a journalist and then (laughs) he just enjoyed the life too much and and as only nice things about the uh the juggalo community turns out they're the reasonable clown posse (laughs) (laughs) this is when i really thought like this is very critically like all this gulf war stuff and especially like the saying the name Cokie Roberts feels like a critic joke to me too. The Gulf War stuff especially because around this time the episode of Futurama Wars the H word had aired and our mm-hmm. thoughts on war in the year 2000 were much different than they are now. Like that's why the the Iraq stuff is very lighthearted and there's not the baggage it has now. Yeah, well a year less than a year before 9/11 they're doing these jokes about it. Like I guess well that also sets Sophie's age a very specific time for the year 2000 which it's also funny if you think about like the sliding timeline of the simpsons bart lived through desert storm he was alive during it and now he's meeting a character that is written to be the same age as him who seemingly was conceived at the time bart was aware of the desert storm yeah Yeah, i wrote i wrote in my notes this is the first time i think that we flashback to uh an era in which the simpsons already existed yes yeah Yeah. that's true yeah yeah, and unfortunately that means they can't do a joke about bootleg Bart merchandise of him strangling Saddam. Uh, but yes, let's hear the story of uh, Baghdad love. Listen, honey, a lot of kids think of me as their daddy, but I'm just a simple TV legend. <laughs> Here, have a keychain. No, I'm sure you're my father. You met my mom during the Gulf War. Ugh. 
Was your mother an Israeli flight attendant? No. Cokie Roberts? No, <laughs> she was a soldier. Chestnut brown hair, kind of shy, 32 confirmed kills. <laughs> oh boy, now it's coming back to me. Saddam Hussein? They should call him so damn insane. <laughs> hey, you're just fanning the flames of hatred. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, just when you thought the desert couldn't get any hotter, it's the Cincinnati Bengal cheerleaders! I can't look at that. I have a girlfriend back home. This is an <laughs> insult to our Muslim hosts. Unironically, I want soldiers to feel that yeah. in other places. This uh, wildly inaccurate behavior I want to see in real life, but it's very funny. I like how reverent they are. Yes. These yeah. rowdy soldiers. Uh, especially about the Muslim host thing. That's funny. Wasn't that was like a concern we had at some point during Desert Storm, right? I think so. I, I do think that actually came up about the USO tours. And that, that also feels very quaint of just like, well, no, we're supposed to just bulldoze this shit when we come into Afghanistan or Iraq, you know. Uh, well, also all these Saddam jokes like, God, that guy's been dead for like 15 years now. It just yeah. feels so... It's so weird, honestly, how easily propagandized we were into hating this guy. It's like, oh, he's America's number one enemy. He has no impact on us, but he's somewhere else. And like, it's almost as if consent was being manufactured mm. somehow. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoy how offended they are at So Damn Insane, which I think I saw that on so many t-shirts in 1990, 1991, right? Yeah, I like that Krusty's so hacked that he's using that. And he thinks that later we find out that it's worth not saving Saddam's life because he values these jokes so much. And and also, I mean, the, the Simpsons and critic writers really love talking about how bad Bob Hope stand-up is, especially his USO tour stuff. We're not that far removed from Homer learning to be a hippie from watching the, the Bob right. Hope video. Yeah. A sandstorm comes in. Uh, apparently the bit of Krusty walking through the sandstorm is a reference to the Meryl Streep film, The French Lieutenant's Woman. Sure. Which it, sure. that was yeah. previously referenced when Lisa writes the letter home right. from Camp Krusty. Gives the man, give it to the man on horseback. Then. Yes, yeah. yeah. Then, man, these animators are real horny for this character. Sophie's mom. The wiki will tell you she has a name, but that's a lie, man. She was definitely given a name later. You know, well, she's like in a comic book or yes, something. She was given yeah. a name in a comic book. She does not have a name because this is also very criticky. You don't, we don't name, name women. women. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We it's did gross. all we did so much of talking critic, it's like, wow, this this woman Jay is dating for this entire episode is not named. Yes, she's uh you would think the a character who has the second most lines to Jay in an episode would have a name that would be spoken aloud, but somehow, no. I guess it's because most women on the critic are like monsters that who uh destroy men's lives. <laughs> I just, for the same reason that I watched every episode of The Simpsons, I just rewatched the movie uh, like yesterday. And she is very prominently placed in the movie in the scene where Green Day dies. Yeah, I remember that oh, now. Really? She's like next to Kent Brockman, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, there's Sophie's mom. Way, way to go. You went to a Green Day concert. That's fun for you. It's also funny that they draw her so sexualized in this bit and then late and then later though as the frigid ex-wife she is drawn as unsexy as possible i didn't quite get that close-up of her face is it supposed to be attractive because it's a very odd drawing i don't know if they're trying to accentuate certain features within the style of the show but it just seems odd to me i think that when crusty is describing her they changed a line and that she would have there's no reason for Simpson characters never blush like a blush never appears on the face 
Because mm-hmm. uh, we don't Layton's see nostrils page. ever, really. Yes, yeah. yeah, that too. Yeah, the level of detail. I feel like they're. My guess is that Krusty had a line that directly referenced her features, and then they're like, "Yeah, let's change that line." And so instead, he says, "Like maybe, maybe it's because the Muslim women were biting." <laughs> but at first, I thought it was the first time a Simpson character blushed, but it actually is not. Mm. Uh, it at least happened one time before. When Nelson presented posies to Sherry Bobbins. Oh, right. Uh, his cheeks actually redden as uh, someone blushing would do. It's a weird director directorial choice to like break what is essentially a rule that you don't show that kind of like face color change. Yeah, yeah, which makes me think there was purpose to it other than trying to make her look like a cute lady, which mm. also like, you know what? She gets a really raw deal here. Like a strange clown barges into your private bedroom, basically on base. You're also like a woman in the military in 1990. You're probably sexually harassed every second you walk anywhere. And then they have to put her as like this monstrous battle axe. And and for what? Because Krusty ruins her fucking career and her main job of a, of a targeted assassination. I guess if we would have cut out the dynamites thing in the beginning, we could have had like a scene together with them where they fell in love, not just like instant attraction. Yeah. Instant getting down with the clown. The second this strange clown walks into her thing, she's like, I am open for business. Like I, I don't under, I mean, everybody has their own things, but what makes her so attracted to Krusty the Clown in that moment? Uh, but I guess Krusty has his own reasonings for it. He thinks it was the the just the danger of the situation or the magic. Uh, I just love his statement of like, it was magic. So doing a Johnny Carson uh, character impression. <laughs> he's uh, he's not dead yet. And he'd only stop being on TV for six years. When the morning after begins... Uh, Sophie's mom says the only word she says in the whole episode, which is that she overslept and it's, uh, it's going to fail to kill Saddam Hussein. Krusty then basically commits a treasonable offense of preventing her from killing Saddam Hussein. Uh, he would have been sent to Gitmo for that, honestly. Uh, but, but don't worry, we got him. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but so Krusty explains his reasoning in this next bit. I just saved my baseball bit. Who's saying Zahn first? Ayatollah Zahn second, and ah, stupid clown! When I came to, she was gone, and the war had been over for eight months. Anyway, how'd you finally find me? All Mom ever said was my father was some pathetic clown. So I typed pathetic clown into a search engine, and your name popped right up. It's Mom. Hey, how you been? Remember me? Better get going. It was nice meeting you. Thanks for coming out. But I was hoping maybe we could do some stuff together, like go to the beach and junk. Look, you're a sweet kid, but I'm not exactly father material. I curse, I gamble, I pick fights with homeless people. <laughs> I... What's wrong with your eyes? You need a Claritin or something? <laughs> oh, all right. You get one trip to the beach with my assistant. Okay, I'll take you. Yay! Krusty is on fire in this episode, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is really good for Krusty episode. Uh, though, why would the Ayatollah and Snob be on the same team, Krusty? Mm. They, they're they hated enemies. We didn't hear the whole bits, okay. you know? <laughs> I'm sure he sorted it out eventually. 
I also wonder, like, with this uh, sexy woman in fatigues thing, is this like a G.I. Jane kind of reference? Is this what they're going for? Like, that was just a couple years before this episode aired. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. Um, It seems like around the same time. And, like, we generally don't eroticize female soldiers that much. That they have to then turn her into just a battle axe like ex-wife who just fiercely hates this guy. Becomes like, like psychotic. Yeah. Like just, just to the point of not speaking any more lines, just growling. Uh, it's really, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that. But I think, you know, just two years later, if they said this joke, she'd say, I Googled pathetic cr- clown, not typed pathetic clown into a search engine. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. I'm glad we have the verb yeah. Google now. Um, I looked that up because I was uh, surprised by that, too. Apparently, we weren't using Google as a verb often enough then that they knew to use that. But the first time it ever appears in TV is in an episode of the last season of Buffy. Wow. Wow. Man, man. I mean, Yahoo was a big uh, deal in 2000. So maybe we were Yahooing things. I don't think anyone ever used that as a verb, though. I don't know why not. Yeah, I don't think I ever, yeah, I said like, oh, Yo, yeah, I Yahooed it. I binged it. <laughs> well, that's because, well, for, for me, I would use, I used a smattering of search engines until it was a while before Google uh, took it over for me. So I wouldn't use one just as a verb. I mean, you know, when you really think about it, it's kind of gross. We just use a uh, giant brand name as a verb, just an everyday phrase. We, well, use Xerox things. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I put on Kleenex, my Band-Aid. Q-tip. Yeah. Q-tip, yeah. all of them. I Google pathetic. Cl- sorry, I Google pathetic clown, and uh, that frame came up. Oh, so all right. that's perfect. <laughs> that's uh, good. I would have thought we get a picture of our former president. No, or any politician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is the bit in the episode where I think the personal experience of like Hollywood writer dads comes in here. Like this is about, you know, balancing like whether you're divorced or not. Like this is about being being a Hollywood dad who is famous, but also is uh, weird with your kids, like doesn't know how to relate to them. Probably may perhaps because you're like a workaholic who doesn't spend any time with them. So they're like strangers to you. It's kind of I do think it's kind of sweet how uh crusty wants to uh, well actually barely wants to uh, be with her but like she's <laughs> it's so sad how he doesn't even recognize her as crying he's just like you need a clarinet well, what's this about and he should be good around kids presumably but yes, he's, yeah. he's a children's entertainer <laughs> Uh, Sophie is far more understanding than most ch- children are. I think after the first time you just like shut down. But uh, there's also a bit they mentioned on the commentary. I don't think it was in the deleted scenes like footage of like Mo saying Annie DeFranco, more like Annie Descanco, which I was like, what? <laughs> what? Wait, where would he have said that? Yeah. I, I, they, I don't know. They mention it over <laughs> this scene. I mean, he maybe I, I don't know why he would have said it, but uh, was, huh. Matt, was Matt Salmon saying he was ashamed of that joke or something? I think so. That it was yeah. his joke. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have a Krostovsky family question for you guys. And that is this weird theory online that um, so like Sophie is drawn to be coded as being Krusty's kid. And one of the ways you can see that is that she has that specific shade of green as her hair color. And do you guys know about the idea that Barbara Van Horn, Mel, Sideshow Mel's wife, is supposedly Krusty's sister? And, like, oh, people yes. feel strongly about this? Yeah, we talked about that in uh, in the one for Realty Bites. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's right. Okay. Because they, yes, they, uh, so as I recall, it was Sideshow Mel 
while uh is being beaten by crusty while they're listening to learning lumpkin songs that i told you to stay away from my sister but yeah. then the song melts crusty's heart and he's like ah you could take her someplace nice so then in realty bites when mel is uh being shown a home by marge and they're bowling him and his wife are bowling uh you know his wife is just you know uh, a pretty lady but she is given crusty colored hair which i i did note in that moment yeah. oh wow i didn't know about this theory and it's not even sideshow mel style hair it is just the crusty color hair on this attractive otherwise attractive normal looking woman mm. but the thing about the simpsons is they always like to do like uh like how sarah wiggum looks like chief wiggum and like luann looks like kirk and they don't make her look like a female sideshow mel and it's probably nothing, but I just love that there is a contingent of people writing the Simpsons wiki who are like, no, no, officially Barbara Van Horn is Barbara Kostovsky Van Horn. Yeah, I, I remember reading on that wiki that they treat her entry as anytime, not just her on screen, but if Krusty says, well, my sister blank, they then use that to fill in information on her, mm. treating her as, as it is canon that that's his sister. I mean, Krusty... Well, Krusty is a very cold person in general, but he certainly doesn't treat Mel like his brother-in-law. No, no, know? no. I, I'm looking at a picture of her. It could be. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I think the coloring used that idea. Though, Drew, I think you're right, too, that it could just be following the rule of Millhouse's parents or Ralph's parents are all drawn to just look the same in general. There's no mm-hmm. bone in her hair, though. Yes. <laughs> they should have just gone all that all the way with it. I would also think about an illegitimate crusty children. He's got a son out there, too, as seen in Marge versus the monorail. Right. Yep. Woggy woogie wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So another another weird thing with the coloring issue is that when Sophie comes back, they lighten her skin. So she doesn't in this episode, she basically has the same skin tone as like the Simpsons do. And they made her skin tone lighter. And I don't know why they would do that, but it uh, had the weird effect of making her colored more like sideshow Mel than she was like Krusty. Yeah. I, you know, you're right. I, I didn't catch that, that they, they change it. I prefer her having just standard yellow skin tone, mm. but uh, yeah, maybe uh, where, where are they going with this Mel thing? I wonder. But yeah, the next scene, I feel like this is a cute little dinner scene of them gossiping with Homer gossiping with God. It's like an older joke from Homer where he gets into like personal business with God when he's praying. Yes. Yeah. That's like Mm -hmm. a season one thing even. Yeah. I, uh, but to make it feel like the year 2000, Homer says, I know he's a player. Like Homer using player in that way is a very year 2000 thing. Definitely. And, uh, and also, I we again this is the same production season as the death of Maud so they're already joking like Maud's get get taking it from all comers yeah. and in heaven right now really all those guys wow uh what what a horrible thing for Homer to say about the woman he ki- he basically killed so is Homer hearing the voice of God at this point <laughs> I guess so in his mind he's hearing God say Maud is having sex <laughs> with lots of different men in heaven that's game, Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is the last time I'm going to flash forward, I swear. But, no worries. Uh, have you guys seen the season finale of episode 29? It's called Flanders Ladder. Uh, no, 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 I'm not. Okay, so I want to tell people that listen to this podcast that like maybe you should just watch this episode because it is fucking wild. They do a lot of cutaways to Maud in heaven, like looking down on her kids. That happens kind of a lot. There's this episode where 
in an extended dream sequence that is like the bulk of the episode, Bart can see ghosts and they have Bart interact with the ghosts of like every dead character. Okay, in the I have the show. seen that. I have seen that. Oh, and I want to watch yeah. this. It's worth a watch. And um, like, there's a, you see a scene with everyone like Amber Simpson is there and like Sherry Bobbins is there, which is weird to see. But Maud is there and Maud's actually kind of the second most important character because her whole thing is wanting to get revenge on Ned for marrying Edna because at this point Edna is not dead and it is the weirdest episode that also seems like Simpsons fan fiction and also seems like they were really trying to work within the mythology of the show and a lot of people hate it and I'm not going to say it is necessarily the greatest thing ever but it is a fascinatingly weird thing to watch and then it ends with a flash forward to telling you how every Simpsons character dies Oh yeah, but it uh, turns into the end of Six Feet Under with the, with the same song, even I think. Yeah, and Maggie Simpson does not die, ever. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, man. Okay, I have seen the end of that one. I think I did it for Maud research at mm. some point to be like any every time Maud came back, voiced by Maggie Roswell again. Once they showed her in heaven for the first time, they could never bring her back. It's it's really no. too bad. The door was yeah. open until then. I, I there's another recent episode just about how creepy it is that like the or and tragic that like Rod can't remember his mother's face and mm. he, like he doesn't see it in dreams. Yeah, um, I know I, a lot of people didn't like that episode either. I kind of feel like newer middling episodes of The Simpsons are better than like middling episodes of The Simpsons from this era. I think they kind of did some interesting things like trying to give the Flanders kid like actual emotions and motivations that he doesn't really have every, any other episode. I guess it's weird when you're ten, but your mom is been dead for 20 years yes yeah. <laughs> it does mess with you uh so we head to the beach and uh crusty not much fun at the beach okay kid there's the water knock yourself out come on dad let's go body surfing or boogie boarding listen kid i'm not the kind of dad who uh, you know does things or says stuff or looks at you <laughs> but the love is there where are you give daddy a clue oh that's my girl <laughs> Okay, you just sit there and I'll throw the frisbee to you. Oh, I gotta sit up now? Ugh. What am I, Barishnikov? Oh. <laughs> hey, you beat me. What a great day we've had, <laughs> huh? You know, for a clown, you're not really a lot of fun. <sighs> I, I love that crusty line. I'm not the kind of dad who does things or does stuff or looks at you. <laughs> but the love is there. The love is there. God, yeah. I well, and also like Drew Barrymore does a really good job, uh, play like playing that line. Like that's just well acted. Of like saying like uh, you know, for a clown, you're not really a lot of fun. Like she's a heartbroken child. Are they pitching her voice up? It sounds like they're pitching her well, voice up a little maybe. bit. I can never tell. I can never tell if someone's doing it manually or if it's done after the fact. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I also like hearing Scully on the commentary saying like, he's just like my dad, except he's there. <laughs> uh, that rules. And, and I love the design of Krusty wearing sock garters to the beach. Like like a, like he's a, one of the sunshine boys when Neil <laughs> Simon play. And the yeah. old timey like swimming suits, like striped swimming suit top. Yeah, the Krusty. I mean, in 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 his first appearance, Krusty is supposed to be like a guy who is sixty then, which would make him seventy that na in the year two thousand. That's a, another one where the floating time frame has to be like they used to be able to show a, a clip where Krusty is like, well, this is like they could tell you Krusty's been on the air for twenty nine years in in nineteen ninety two, but they really can't do that joke anymore. 
they then cut to the other dads doing a good job. Apparently, Apu is doing a lot better with uh, with having eight kids. It's like the one time we've seen him happy with all these kids. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sounding like the back page of a Sunday comic now, but did you guys spot the difference in uh, the shot with Ned? Oh, no. Ned no. is oh. drawn with a normal body. He's not the hot bod we've oh, usually seen. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. I didn't even notice. Thank you for pointing that out. I'm it, disappointed in myself that I did not notice that. It's it's the first time I noticed he's not the stupid, sexy Flanders we all know and love. He let himself go after <laughs> Maude died. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, too, he's not the man with the chest in that thought shot. And though now, unfortunately, I'm thinking about like, so, how, what is... For him to wear board shorts to the beach, where what is he having to do to uh, contain that genitals? <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's some gaffer's tape involved. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, Henry, and not me. <laughs> uh, I do like that Ned doesn't want it to look like a Catholic uh, church. That's too, not though. an inner tube. I'm done. <laughs> oh, okay. Come on. Come on. Uh, and... Uh, and then we get a little cute bit of uh, Kearney with his kid. I, I always like when he's teaching his kid. I, lo- I love the I sleep in a drawer kid. Yes. <laughs> uh, Kearney let him out of his door for a dad day. And, <laughs> and so then we cut to Homer being tortured by his kids, which in a vacuum, it's funny. The drawing itself is very fun. It's a great drawing of every child attached to him in some way and doing something to mess with him. Yeah, especially him getting hit with bubbles in the eyes. And uh, and also he has one of those, like, you know, the Velcro uh, catcher's mitt thing that you have for the beach. I like that. But, but you know, if you're going to do this again, don't have Homer nine minutes earlier be the worst parent in the world. <laughs> that's That's all. <laughs> This feels like the dad's on the show venting, like yes, my yeah. kids piss me off. Just like, just like how that uh, make room release episode ends with the moral of the story is you kids don't take they take your parents for granted. And then uh, Krusty selects of all the dads he sees, he selects Homer as being the best one to be his mentor, just for no reason other than that that has to happen for the story to move along. So. Frankly, Apu would be the best, I think. Yeah. Out yeah. of all the yeah. examples he saw. If he can handle eight kids, the telling uh, tips on one, it'll be a breeze. Well, I think, too, it's interesting that Krusty not only befriends Homer in this episode, but also they fight the mafia together, which is the both of what happened in Homie the Clown. And that same mafia mm-hmm. guy is in the, uh, the oh, gathering. Oh, yeah, Don Victoria DiMaggio is yeah. there, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yes, Homer has some lessons for his old buddy Krusty. You know, Homer... I spend my whole life entertaining kids, and I just realize I don't know the first thing about them. Well, I won't lie. Fatherhood isn't easy, like motherhood. But I wouldn't <laughs> trade it for anything, except for some mag wheels. Oh, man, that would be sweet. Dad, Dad. Just a second, honey. Daddy's on his high horse. Huh. Dad! Yeah, I'm watching, honey. Nice cannonball. Anywho, the key to fathering is don't overthink. Because overthinking is, um, what were we talking about? Ooh, a clown! (laughs) I just want to play one second of that, so you can get a taste of uh, I Like That Girl by NRBQ. Yeah, some more NRBQ, their, like, seventh appearance on the show so far. They, he paid for multiple homes of theirs with the, with this licensing. (laughs) Why? 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 Why do we have to listen to it again and again? You guys may have talked about it on a previous oh, episode, but they're Mike Scully's favorite band. Yes, yes. And we honestly, we would do the same thing if we it's were running a show. It's pure cronyism, and I'd hey, I would find my favorite. Ba- I don't know. 
uh let's say they might be giants i'd pay i'd give them a bunch of money to do original songs for my show are they original songs or are they like uh, no actually this songs? isn't original they they then rbq did record a couple original things for the simpsons as well but uh okay. like i think the best use of nrbq was the marmalade song yeah. they did. yeah <laughs> but this one but- eh the difference between you in your like dream show like giving they might be giants stuff to do is that like in real life you meet people who like they might be giants and like i only know one person who likes nrbq and it's mike scully and i've never heard of anyone else talk about this band it is just same here the only other person i can think of is diedrich bader because that's how he (laughs) met mike scully at an nrbq concert that's right uh well diedrich bader's a great actor and voice actor and everything but it's funny that he got cast on simpsons because they he's an nrbq fan as well i mean they're on a different level of fame as drew barrymore so it's weird to see like drew barrymore stephen king john updike and nrbq all in the same episode the homer in this entire speech here is like kind of the dumbest he's ever been one of the dumbest he's ever been like he is forgetting who he's talking to as he's talking to him (laughs) a clown and i guess what mag wheels are accessories for cars yeah they're like they're they're like fun wheels for your car okay that's all we got to say i love all the mag wheel jerks are going to come out in the comments now (laughs) you guys really don't understand mag wheels (laughs) i like homer thinking motherhood is easy too that's pretty great uh but yeah the just it's been a few minutes so it's time to torture lisa again of her being like surrounded by a manta ray so uh i feel like in the original script it was a shark and they they toned it down to manta ray that's uh that's just my gut on it it makes sense do manta rays kill people or no Uh, i mean they famously killed uh steve Irwin. yeah that's 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 right and they're so fun to pet i know (laughs) i've i've enjoyed petting manta rays uh in a couple of times i can't do that in the i hope in the post-covid world i can get back to petting manta rays again (laughs) that's 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 what you're most excited to do (laughs) it's it's up there but ahead of ahead of a concert uh but um uh but yeah then they have a like a a pair of gags about just uh you know the a horse them riding horseback together but they're surfing with the horse the impossibility of them running away from the tide and then getting splashed with water from behind somehow that's very funny i do like that and uh and crusty bribing sea captain to keep putting fish on the line so uh so sophie can feel good that's that's sweet Mm -hmm. and there's a sweet little scene where uh she plays her violin for him yes yeah actually i got that here too kid i gotta admit you're starting to grow on me same here dad it's nice that you don't always have to be on i thought i was on when was i off that bit about the tide pool? I tell you, it killed at Jacques Cousteau's funeral. Dad, relax. Just enjoy the sunset. Hey, I know that song. My dad used to play that when I was a boy. It's beautiful. Do you play? No, I guess musical talent skips a generation. Like diabetes. You might want to watch out for that, too. Mom, I had the best time. Can Dad come in for milk and cookies? Why, I'd love to. Oh, why? Oscar Hamolka. <laughs> That's okay. I think I'll go somewhere friendlier, like beautiful downtown Grozny. <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> 
I so, do love that zoom. Yeah, I do like that. <laughs> uh, Oscar Homolka. I think it just it just it's the name of an actor, but I think it was chosen because it sounds like it could be like a Yiddish expression. I think so. <laughs> that that to me sounds like Dan Castellaneta. I bet if you ask him to do an Oscar Homolka impression, he can do it. So I bet that's just a name in his Rolodex, and he's like, oh, that sounds like a fun exclamation. Uh, I thought what was interesting about this scene was that Sophie's mom does not look like Sophie at all. Like mm. they, you wouldn't think that they are related, and they code them as being attached to each other because they give them both Peter Pan collars, which is a very odd hmm. design choice, but that's how we're supposed to associate this mom with this little girl. Yeah, they they should have designed her. I feel like they just designed a sexy soldier lady and not uh, anything else with her. And and also, like, I don't know, I, I instead of making her just the clown-hating ex-wife monster, I would have been interested to know emotionally her side of things of like that she's raised this daughter all by herself and now all of a sudden she loves this dad that had abandoned her her whole <laughs> life you know i mean yeah. obviously obviously crusty's not at fault of not spending time with her before because he didn't know she existed but still i i feel like the ex-wife they make her such a man hater but there's they could actually deal with something more deep if they talked about her worried that she's losing her daughter to the that she actually put the effort into raising to the father who just showed up until drew pointed out i totally missed that the the connecting feature between the two characters are their collars yeah me neither. they have identical collars um yeah again if they just kicked out the fireworks segment and maybe re reworked the third act of this there would be more room for both the mom and also sophie who kind of disappears in the third act so yeah but then there wouldn't be time for like then they'd have to think of a name for this ex-lover of crusty's and that that'll take all day you know <laughs> name a woman gosh <laughs> what, what are women's uh, names helen we're staying late tonight boys <laughs> uh, i want 30 women's names on that chalkboard let's go <laughs> Uh, but I, I do, I did, uh, think it was kind of sweet how Krusty cries at hearing his, his daughter play the song his father played him growing up. His father is still alive and we'll be back in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I guess that scene works better if his father's dead, but, uh, but it's still kind of touching and, but yeah, that, that setup of the ex-husband standing outside well again Krusty's not the ex-husband but the ex standing outside the front door of the apartment looking in and seeing things that terrify him that's like two jokes combined from the critic like mm. that's straight from the critic it's the gag of jay arriving at his super fan's house in the misery parody and everything on the wall is a picture of him and then it's also the times Jay is standing outside the door to visit Ardith and she is just like screaming with anger and even <laughs> having to look at him. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, but at least it's funny drawings of dead clowns. I had to laugh at yeah. those. And, uh, and he's talking about the Chechen city of Grozny, which uh, from 99 to 2000 in the Battle of Grozny, thousands of people died during the Chechen Civil War. So... Uh, fun fun joke there. too soon crusty <laughs> too soon uh but i always love a it goes over your head act out like it's just so funny i think homer does a whoosh when he does it but zoom's funny too and then in a very weird turn after all that sweetness homer crusty invites homer to a criminal poker game with snake and fat tony at it i guess they're no longer holding these at homer's kitchen since the car hole incident yeah well though also after mo learned that homer is so slow that he's terrible to play poker with why did mo invite him back 
so my headcanon for this is that there are two parallel poker groups. There's one for like Lenny and Carl and Barney, and that's like the nice guys who are not actual criminals. And this is like the seedy underbelly of Springfield poker group where the stakes are higher. That's what I made up in my head. I could see that. And Krusty's like, no, you're coming to my poker night, Homer, as a thank you to you. Like I said, though, in most of these scenes, it's like Homer is an accessory to this story because it could it would work much better if it was just crusty alone but there's always the thought you know no a simpson needs to be witness to these things i do like oh, Homer guys- reflecting on like my uncle still has my nose that's a good interjection <laughs> by him though uh, you guys just just to prove that with your most recent episode about the one where the simpsons don't show up it's the rare one the it road to cincinnati yeah. 20 years to build up the courage <laughs> to do that mm-hmm. like no simply no simpsons crusty has four aces a pretty great hand uh he his poker face is destroyed by a spinning bow tie uh but yes there are two hands better than it a straight flush and a royal flush and uh so it's funny that crusty thinks like that's a lock which is like mm-hmm. no four aces is not a lock it can be beaten but uh, statistically low chance of it and uh and yeah it's also funny to see fat tony just brought in it reminds me of how say in the episode faith off for no reason in the last like four minutes three minutes fat tony shows up to be like hey i'll kill you if you don't do like it's just it's instant stakes to add in fat tony I yeah think. i do always like him and uh-huh. it's like yeah there's like six guest stars in this uh, episode <laughs> it's kind of a lot did they have a guest star budget they had to run out by the end of the season <laughs> but i mean joe montagna is pretty great and it's fun to hear him on the commentary especially i think my favorite bit on the commentary is him and dan castellanetta reflecting on that they were both chicago-based actors at, at, at the same time in yeah. the 80s but one was in the serious actor uh, realm and the other was in the second city realm and that oh, his um uh, his voice for fat tony is based on his uncle who yeah. he brought to one of the recordings when he was alive and everyone was tickled by the fact that he sounds just like fat tony that's so sweet that's real sweet i am always impressed when i remember that that's not what joe mantania actually sounds like in his day-to-day life he is doing a character that is like not <laughs> his normal self uh i should see him in a real movie again it's been a long time since i've seen him and uh, i mean you, you can know, always watch thinner uh, oh yes yeah he's boy he is uh he is an ethnic cleanser of the romani people in that film it's it's pretty not fun. a good guy i guess to talk about uh, stephen king again that's a stephen king oh classic. yeah uh, he's in the money pit he plays a uh contractor who makes an uh, un- unrequited pass at shelly long you know i was also thinking about him with um uh oh yeah you guys have your shelly long cast i should be if you we we, we we talk about shelly long a lot yes yeah <laughs> Uh, I I was thinking about it because the, the I believe they're about to re-release Godfather three with like the definitive cut and I think they filmed some new scene with with Pacino or something and uh, Montaigne's in that it's it's you know it's pretty funny I was uh, how time has changed Sofia Coppola is in that movie and everybody was super cruel to her like oh what nepotism putting his daughter in it thirty years later everybody who made fun of that puts their kid or gives their yeah. job every job in Hollywood and it's like how how the worm has turned you guys and also you can't make fun of Sofia Coppola now because she actually is a very well-established director it should have been Winona Ryder but she was unavailable mm, that would have been a better movie yes but, yeah. I think that's actually worse for Sofia Coppola to everyone's like you just got this because you you were the director's daughter and she's like actually I was the second choice <laughs> oh god yeah uh, that's even that is meaner uh, but uh, but yeah so Krusty he's got four aces but he's running out of money he needs to he needs to find something to up the bet with uh and i do like homer asking if it can be a high low split which uh 
that is when the pot is divided between the player with the best hand and or the high hand and the player with the lowest hand which means the lowest ranking card so it's funny that homer keeps asking like hey can we do the thing where you split the plot pot with the guy with the worst hand no oh okay then i'm out i did not know that uh again i had to look up a lot of rules for poker for this scene though i should be playing i was playing a bit of video game poker in uh in yakuza lately yeah i was gonna say all i know is how like you play it in video games yes yeah uh and uh, also calling back to that critic uh desert storm episode homer even sings uh in the jungle just right, like jay does there. right oh my god i was wondering where i heard that before and <laughs> okay uh, so yeah i was wondering where that was coming from because uh like i, did, I couldn't figure out what they were referencing sing um, because like the lion uh, lion sleeps at night hadn't been in pop culture at that point you're right that's where it's from <laughs> i think they're just like oh, that was funny in that other critic let's do it there. what if jay sung it again yeah. uh and so crusty goes to his car searching for anything he could use i like that he like even looks at his floor mats like can i bet that but <laughs> uh he he sees sophie's violin which is definitely not worth two thousand uh, dollars which they have to point out uh but i i like the animation of the four aces singing do it to him and you'll ne she'll never know nice harmonizing uh and uh it gets appraised by uh, <laughs> a man with a jeweler's loop who can somehow read sentimental value into it too. I, I enjoy fat tony holding it not really knowing what it is and then rubbing it on his teeth that's great yeah <laughs> uh but so crusty calls and it's uh not so good well it won't bring much cash but its sentimental value is through the roof it is acceptable. Then I'm in and I call four aces. Read them and straight flush. Oh, no, no. You can't. My daughter will never forgive me. Oh, wait. Now I can do it for real. That's a good joke. Yeah, um, it goes on for like 10 seconds. I like how long they spend just on him playing the violin. And at the end, I like him going, yee, like yeah. that when he grins. <laughs> Uh, and also, it's like a really good drawing of Krusty looking like heartbroken through the yeah. the crook of his elbow. I like that shot too. And a very accurate animation of him like hitting the different strings on the violin. Oh, just yeah. like someone spent mm -hmm. a lot of time on that scene, I could tell. So kudos to you. It's a very, very good act break. It's one of the better act breaks I can like think of in The Simpsons. I, I really like that it, it ends on a joke, but also a stakes thing. I like that. I mean, is they said that the third act was heavily rewritten from the original one. And I do think it seems very, you know, well, what if the mob takes her violin <laughs> and he's got to get it back to prove he loves his daughter? This poker game feels like where the swerve happened, where the rewrite happened. Where it's I like, think so. And now Fat Tony is here. Hooray. <laughs> but I, I kind of love all the mafia stuff they do in Act 3 because they have not really done uh, things with the whole mafia in a while. It's yeah. usually just Fat Tony who shows up. So I, I like all this stuff coming up. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. But, uh, but first, Krusty has to break the bad news to Sophie. Dad? Hey, hey! Now look, Sophie. I know you think your daddy's perfect. No, I don't. But I did a bad <laughs> thing. I lost your violin in a poker game. You what? But don't worry, I got you an even better one. This is a ukulele. Yeah, the thinking man's violin. Check it out. 
I want to go back to my little grass shack in Kealaka, Hawaii. I want my violin. But honey, I... I, I, I can't believe you would gamble with something that meant so much to me. Wait! Time out! Four aces is not a gamble. Mom was right. I was better off not knowing you. Krusty briefly becomes Adam Sandler's character from Uncut Gems. They're like, hey, that's not a gamble, okay? <laughs> I, I mean, he's also singing the uh, the 1930s Hawaiian song, uh, My Little Grass Shack, and he says it. I can't, I can't pronounce it. But <laughs> I think it's also really cute how they say hey, hey to each other. Like, that's really mm-hmm. nice. It's a great I way like to show that. the growth between them, I think. Just that little exchange. Um, also, Drew's, Drew's reading of No, I Don't is exactly what it should be. It's perfect. Yes, yeah. No, I know. Like, yeah, she's she's not judging. She's not being a jerk. She's just like, just no. Matter of fact. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, all right. Then we come to the last bit of, of Lisa content that I didn't like in this episode. First, we have a joke clearly written by people who have never watched the TV series Dawson's Creek. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've never watched it. So I thought this uh, is what was actually happening on the show. Uh, well, other not than, really. Yeah. <laughs> other than the character Dawson, they don't name any name of a person who was on that show. Also, I'm fairly certain that show never had a Latinx character. Yeah. Yeah, they actually, it's a very, it's an incredibly undiverse show, uh, yep. actually. Uh, I mean, they, they they did have a gay character on it, at least, but uh, starting in the second season. I think really just so Kevin Williamson could tell the gay stories without making Dawson gay. That was like, yeah. they, hmm. they basically just like, well, there's this guy, Jack, who just is Dawson, and he'll be gay. <laughs> but that's why um, Dawson didn't like get laid until like the four, fifth season of the show. Is that true? He, uh, do you know who he lost his virginity to on the show? The character Dawson? No. It was Pacey. To... It was Pacey. <laughs> I, I wish. That's no, the only other I... character name I know. Pacey ends up with Joey, uh, but then, uh, but yeah, Dawson, uh, he lost his virginity to, uh, Michelle Williams' character. Hmm. So. Oh, that's sweet. That's, that's that's okay, I guess. She got a bad rap in the end of that series. Anyway, this is Dawson talk <laughs> here. I should uh, drop but that. But Bumblebee Man is there, and he says, "What the dilio in Spanish?" That's funny. That's Two cute. uses of "What the dilio" in The Simpsons. But boy, do I not like that Lisa of yeah. all characters has to be the one who's like, "I think this is forced diversity pandering." I'm like, "What the f- what?" What? Lisa, Lisa should not be saying this. Yeah, Bart can say this line and it's fine. Marge can say it and it still works. But Lisa is just like they're just sh- having Lisa complain that they're just putting people into uh, roles that could be played by a white man. It's just pandering. It's like Bart. If I hate hearing Lisa say that, she she could complain that like their way they're doing is like forced and awkward. That would have been better. But like that's not the words they put into her mouth, which is too bad. The word pandering definitely means a certain thing in this. Yeah. Uh, there's some uh, political commentary happening here social commentary cultural commentary there we go not a fan not a fan i also ironically the next broadcast episode of the simpsons has lisa hanging out with a character played by a dawson's creek co-star joshua jackson himself yeah but this uh this bad parody leads to one of the greatest cutaways of all time hell yes yeah let's uh, i do have that clip you gotta help me my daughter found out i'm a jerk (laughs) <laughs> oh, Krusty, I'm sure she just needs time to get used to you. Marge, may I play devil's advocate for a moment? Sure, go ahead. Stupid game. Now, what were we talking about? My daughter's violin. All right. Why don't we just break into Fat Tony's compound and get it back? Really? You'd help me take on the mob? For a casual acquaintance like you? Absolutely. 
Yeah, devil's advocate joke, one of the all-time greats. And uh, even though I know what's happening, I know the cutaway is going to happen. I get excited for it. It's fun every and time. I, I was blown away the first time. Like that is a, that's an amazing joke. <laughs> I'd never so, seen a joke like that before. Yeah, I don't remember. React. I don't actually know when I first saw this episode because I would have been in my first bit of college when it aired, so I probably saw it way after the fact. But it reminded, it made me feel like it was a Family Guy thing. And I know Family Guy stole like a certain form of cutaway from The Simpsons, but even the way Homer gestures when he asks Marge for permission to play devil's advocate made me think of Family Guy, and that kind of spoiled my enjoyment of this. Although the mm. art on the pinball machine is really good. You're right that it was staged exactly like a Family Guy line, but but the difference would be their couch is against the wall in The Simpsons. House and the couch is in the center of the room in the family guy house so very different that, it's important difference <laughs> um before we get too far past it i do want to say one more thing about the dawson's creek parody the girl whose name is mentioned is jenda which is like a fake made-up sounding name but jenda is also a character who's now recurring on the simpsons voiced by amy poehler that's bart's high school girlfriend who he ends up marrying and divorcing in the future oh. and i was like that's super weird because i've never heard of a person named jenda before weird and I, it's not by the same writer. It's uh, that Jenda comes, Jenda arrives in a Matt Selman script. And um, I just have no explanation for why this name hmm. Jenda would have gotten used twice on the show. I guess Matt Selman would have been in the room. So maybe sure. he threw out Jenda and then forgot about it like 15 years later. <laughs> just He just had Jenda on the brain. That's, mm-hmm. uh, man, I still, we, we, you, I appreciate you, Drew, supporting my Bart is gay theory uh, from Bart to the future. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, uh, it doesn't feel right to me to see Bart with a woman in the future. I don't know. I just, uh, that's, that's not Bart to me, especially after, you know, in the first, in the first four years, especially season four, they enjoyed writing jokes about Bart having gay tendencies that come out. I, I guess especially in Lisa Beauty Queen, they like doing that. And then they stop with him, even though they do it with literally every other character they throw under the gay bus whenever they can. Yes, yeah. I yeah. think all the all the gay jokes for Bart got transferred to Martin. Yeah, but they yeah or but, or Mill or Millhouse or Millhouse yeah. Mm-hmm. Every Milhouse is gay when they don't want to have him be in love with Lisa. Yeah, what the hell's yeah, come on. You have Mar if you're gonna do homophobic jokes, we'll do him with Martin as the little gay boy. Come on. <laughs> he's he's perfect. Give Martin some screen time, man. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, the I also love the design on the devil's advocate. Oh, it's great. Too. I want like a t shirt of that. I'm yeah. sure there are thousands of them on like Redbubble or Etsy or whatever. <laughs> And uh, and yeah, that Homer has to, I appreciate them spotlighting that Homer has no reason to risk his life for Krusty in this way. Uh, and But it is so similar to the end of Homie the Clown. Like, it's it's them going into the lair of the mafia, <laughs> Homer and, and Krusty together. They should have, they, I mean, if they're going to hang a lantern on the fact that Homer should not be working with Krusty for this dangerous mission, they should say, like, just like the last time we did that. Remember, yes. Krusty? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, guess, I guess they wanted to joke about some things, but not other things. Yeah. Uh, but I do love the uh, the mafia meeting set piece. It really feels like uh, just gag filled police squad style humor. Just like everything works for me, even <laughs> though it is a weird uh, plot element of this touching episode about a father and daughter coming together. I like all the jokes. Yes, yeah. I like all the jokes. Uh, but yes, why don't we learn about the many crime families of uh, of the Italian Americans and also meet two of the breakout stars of Modern Simpsons. I heard there's a lunar eclipse tonight. Maybe we should look up. Nah, for me it's solar or nothing. (laughs) (sighs) Welcome to my home. To answer your first question, yes, we do have pasta. Hey, all right, I like pasta. (laughs) If you need money laundered, just set it outside your door. You can pick it up in the morning. 
beautiful. Now some unpleasant news. I have learned that someone in this room is a squealer. We've narrowed it down to either Johnny Kitelips or Frankie the Squealer. Okay, it's me. I can't help it. I just like squealing. It makes me feel big. All right, come on. You're just doing it. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, uh, Johnny Tightlips and Frankie the Squealer uh, in the ranks of uh, Jimmy the Scumbag, right? Yeah, I, I think they've appeared in many more episodes. Than that. I went to the wiki like it's like over two dozen for Johnny Tightlips. He's great. A great drawing, too. More than Sophie. Um, <laughs> it, that episode I told you about where all the ghosts show up, Frankie the Squealer is a ghost in that. And so apparently he's now canonically dead. Man, I know they try to kill him in that treehouse, but that's obviously not canonical when death takes a holiday bits happen. But yeah, I, I feel like he's dead and then he's not dead sometimes. Like he's like Hans Molman. Yeah, yes, actually. Yeah. Or Dr. Nick Riviera. And and something else I'll note on time frame for this year. This I appreciate this because this is the last time they're gonna do parodies of mafia stuff that doesn't include Sopranos. Yeah, we just did a talkie Futurama uh, where uh, it was a mafia episode, but it was all like pre-Sopranos mafia stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do like Homer's plan in that uh, Fat Tony will merely be too distracted by his hosting duties to uh, find them. So it's <laughs> uh, like, he'll just be too busy hosting his party. So there's, I also love that Homer says, if I know Fat Tony and I don't, he'll be there, which, <laughs> which also though isn't true because by my count, before this episode, Fat Tony has tried to kill Homer three times. He tried mm-hmm. to kill him in Homie the Clown. He tried to kill the entire Simpson family in Twisted World of Marge Simpson. And he tried to kill Homer in Mayor to the Mob. And he tried to kill Homer in Faith Off. So actually four times before this. He knows Fat Tony very well. He's, he's I mean, oh, Fat Tony. <laughs> I will go now. <laughs> so uh, it's also just uh, kind of a thumb in the eye of any history there of Homer going like, I don't know, Fat Tony. <laughs> And, uh, of course, it's very funny to hear all the names of the crime families, including the Cuomos. Yeah, I, like hey, I believe it. <laughs> uh, but organized yeah. crime cannot take down COVID-19. No, no. I mean, well, they've been we- they've been weakened so much over the last <laughs> decades. But uh, So Homer and Krusty explore the place. They, they set up all this violent stuff. I do like that they connected with the old crime movie thing of... Uh, tommy guns being kept in violin cases like that's funny i i like that that it's just a pile of them and then also as homer and crusty are searching through it first homer has an idea for no reason to try to climb in the vents <laughs> yeah that has nothing to do with finding the right uh case it's just like well you climb through a vent in a movie right yeah and then homer then in the cutaway has it stuck to his butt which means that he tried to go in butt first into that <laughs> that made me laugh the most of anything in this episode that that really did it for me i have to say I, I really like them, uh, the, how, ba- how bad their plan is where they just walk out in front of everybody with their arms full of cases. That's insane, yeah. I like yeah. how just ludicrous and just gag-heavy this, this bit is. Uh, and uh, oh, also, the bit where uh, they walk in on uh, Frankie the Squealer being beaten, he says Tony's real name is Marion. That is a reference to John Wayne's real name being Marion Robert Morrison. So... And uh, and also, I like that Legs go, uh, Louis goes, "Hey, Legs, let's go jump on Tony's bed." I guess. <laughs> uh, but yes, the uh, we also hear about that they're going to use a website, Crime.org, which is an open domain right now. You just got to pay two hundred thousand dollars. Wow, that's it. 
at least huh. according to the the web page when I I typed in crime.org. And you know what? That's that's a that's a retcon of Fat Tony's name because when he's established, wasn't it like William Fat Tony Williams or something like yep. that? Yes, yeah. yeah. But then at uh, at Homer they fall. It's set up like he's Fat Tony D'Amico. Yeah. So he's had a lot of names. And then of course we, uh, it, as you know, Drew from watching farther ahead, this Fat Tony dies in a few seasons and is replaced by Fit Tony. Who then gains who weight. Who gets fat. Yep. Homer and Krusty very just brazenly walk into the center of the room and cause a gang war as everybody's shooting at each other. Uh, only one person gets hit, though, and uh, that leads to a very silly ending. Wait, but about the gunfight, I love what I love about the gunfight is they're all just firing guns point blank at each other, but no one is getting hit. <laughs> they're able to dodge instantly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, well, it wouldn't be funny if, if Fat Tony or other people just got shot in the face or whatever. But, uh, uh, but yes, that leads to our final clip here. Johnny Tightlips, where'd they hit you? I ain't saying nothing. But well, what do I tell the doctor? Tell him to suck a lemon. <laughs> <gasps> hey! It still sounds weird to me, but I'm glad we're friends again. <gasps> and you've lined the case with money. <laughs> Small bills, unmarked, and non-sequential. Holy simoleons! There must be five grand in there! Oh, which I intentionally put in there for you. You, you lucky little hamantashin. Come on. How about a tune for the old man? <laughs> That's him! That's the one! Homer Simpson! I said I was sorry! Okay. All right, fair enough. Class act. Sorry you're such jerks! Ha <laughs> 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 That bullet went in! Okay, so this is the third time Homer has been shot over the credits in the Mike Scully run. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying he likes doing this a lot. So I think the first time was in uh, Screaming Yellow Honkers. Yes. Where it's a non-canonical scene where Homer is forced to read, uh, you know, like a written statement about how uh, Fox is great. Because the end of that episode talks about all the great programming on what, NBC? Yeah, not just mm -hmm. Dateline, but all the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then in um, EIEI Doe, he is shot by the, uh, the duelist, right? Right? Yeah, but not. But he still wants to eat pie before going to the hospital. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, this is the third time that episode has ended with Homer being shot. Man, that's uh, yeah. I, well, also I I was counting uh, in addition to that how many times just in production season 11 homer screams over the credits because yeah. he did it i i have it here it's uh the episodes last tap dance in springfield screams over the credits the mansion family little big mom eight misbehaving eiei doe and guess who's coming to criticize dinner all of them are homer screaming over the executive producer stuff so uh they i think they just it is funny but they maybe over relied on like have homer just scream us into <laughs> the ending here but but even more specifically how many times he's been shot it's like well you guys really like that i mean it is funny that homer gets shot and if you do it at the very end of the episode no consequences it mm -hmm. doesn't matter <laughs> Yeah, uh, didn't 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 love it. Even I can appreciate you guys saying that there's a rich history of Homer screaming and getting shot over the end credits. But when I watched it, it was just like, oh, that's how it ends. All right. Well, well I guess in cool. all those cases, it is 
what do we have confidence in our ending perhaps if homer screamed over it we'd have more confidence like yeah the sweet ending is going out on her playing the music having homer mm-hmm. run through screaming and being shot at is the crazy ending and they chose that i think it does display a lack of confidence yeah mm-hmm. the other getting shot endings were better <laughs> i do love homer's like sorry you're such jerks like that that get that made me and chuckle. then it seems like he's surprised they still want to come after him yes, <laughs> yeah i i mean also i do like homer running through it just as a way of them recognizing that this had no ending that they in the previous scene crusty just goes like hey i got the violin but the mafia knows you just robbed from them. That doesn't solve your problem. Yeah, they walked out in front of them. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. So I also do love uh, that Sophie, that 5000 bucks is just the start of the child support she's owed. But I like that she describes it the way the FBI would, <laughs> that it's non-sequential. <laughs> Though I really, I feel like Johnny Tightlips for that one picture, that one shot of him, he wouldn't be so recurring. But him saying, tell him to suck on a lemon. That's <laughs> such a funny line that that's why he comes back a million times. He is great. And this episode as a whole, uh, it's, a, it's a mess in terms of plot. And I think the Sophie stuff is kind of buried. But I, I think this episode persists for me because of all the great gags. And one of the all-time great gags is the devil's advocate gag. I just love it so much. So I say I like this episode. I, I am the episode liker on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, I I enjoy this one for the funny jokes. I wish it wasn't so inconsistent with Homer and I reject a jerk ass Homer. And also an unnamed woman is a bad thing in these shows. And just being treating uh, Lisa so poorly. Oh, and I last bit of thing that Sophie is called a hamantash, which is a traditional Jewish cookie, uh, usually related to Purim. But anyway, I could go for some hamantash now. But anyway... I think it's I think it is a uh, I like the heart where the, it comes in and there are jokes that make me laugh a lot plus the legacy of Johnny Tightlips and Frankie the Squealer is is something I think this is a wacky ass episode for the end oh, of the for season sure. and I wish it was a little nicer to Lisa in particular and I definitely would reshuffle some plot things in it. Uh, yeah, I said how I feel about it. Uh, on the Hamantaschen thing, I was I was looking at the Simpsons archive, and one of the people there conjecture that the reason Krusty calls her that is that Hamantaschens are triangular shaped, and Sophie's head is actually shaped oh. like a Hamantaschen. Oh. I'm like, oh, I like that. I like. I think that's a nice little thoughtful thing if it was intentional. I would um, I would say so. There there are several Jewish writers on the show. Yeah, but um, yeah, and people are like. Probably think I have some weird problem where I pick things apart too much, but um, I just like it when stuff happens for a reason rather than happening for no reason because that's what happens on animated sitcoms that are lesser than The Simpsons. Hmm. Well, yeah. this time a lot of stuff happens for no reason because it's it's just funny to see Homer with a bunch of fireworks. Come on, Drew, <laughs> isn't that yeah. just fun? He has returned from the fireworks factory. <laughs> oh, good read. I like that. Yeah, they they go to a pretty early in this one. <laughs> so thanks again to Drew Mackey for being on the show. Drew, please tell us about gayest episode ever and where to find this amazing new video project cataloging every gay joke on The Simpsons. Well, both of these things are conveniently located in the same place, gayestepisodeever.com. That one will take you to everything about my podcast, which looks at LGBT episodes of classic sitcoms. But if you want to watch the big gay Simpsons supercut, that is at gayestepisodeever.com slash Smithers. The the video is titled Smithers and Beyond every, uh, you know, I just said that. You can also look for Smithers and Beyond on YouTube. And uh, that is where most people are currently finding it. So thanks again to Drew Mackey for being on the show. Check out his podcast, Gayest Episode Ever. But as for us, if you want to check out more of our shows and get all these episodes one week ahead of time and at free please go to patreon.com slash talking simpsons sign up there you'll get just that but also access to everything behind the five dollar paywall that is far too many podcasts to mention here but the most recent miniseries behind that paywall was talking futurama season two part two 
And that was nine new episodes of Talking Futurama to wrap up 2020. And if you're behind the $5 paywall, there are two new miniseries coming at you in 2021, this very year. In the spring and the fall, you're going to want to stay tuned for those. It's going to be a lot of fun. So again, that is behind the $5 paywall at patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. But we have a $10 level. If you sign up for that, you get all the $5 stuff, of course, but also access to one Megalon podcast once a month just for patrons of that level or higher. Bob is talking about the What a Cartoon movie. That is our monthly podcast where we cover an animated feature film in the same level of detail we do on our sister podcast, What a Cartoon. On that, we cover a different animated series each week, but on the What a Cartoon movie podcast, we pick a film to talk about super in-depth, sometimes close to five hours in length, as we did in a recent one for the (laughs) end of Evangelion. Uh, We have a ton of awesome ones you can hear. Recent ones include End of Ava, Dexter's Lab, Ego Trip, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and a giant back catalog as well. That $10 a month gets you access to over 100 hours of What a Cartoon Movie podcast, in addition to the ton of other exclusives you get at the $5 level. So please consider supporting me and Bob today and get all of that stuff to listen to at patreon.com slash talking simpsons so i've been one of your hosts bob Mackey. you can find me on twitter as bob servo and my other podcast is retronauts it's a classic gaming podcast all about old video games you can find that wherever you find podcasts or go to patreon.com slash retronauts sign up there for two bonus episodes every month henry what about you why you can stay up to date with henry gilbert stuff if you follow me on twitter at h-e-n-e-r-e-y-g you'll have lots of fun following me there and also speaking of twitter accounts follow at talk simpsons pod on twitter that's the official twitter account of this podcast and our sister shows whenever new podcasts go up on the free feeds or on the patreon or when we have announcements of what we're doing on the patreon you will be informed if you follow at talk simpsons pod on twitter so please do that Thank you so much for joining us, folks. We'll see you next time for Season 2's Two Cars in Every Garage, Three Eyes on Every Fish, and we'll see you then. Looks just the right size of me. Well, I like that girl. She's the cutest little thing I know, plus she likes me back. And all mine from head to toe. Yeah, she never makes me wonder when it comes to that with my head in the world. Cause I like that Did you know Fat Tony's real name is Marion? You just don't get it, do you?